Warzone Fenris, Part 2, The Wrath of Magnus. The tempers of the Imperial Fleet's commanders were tindered dry, and the entire Fenris system teetered upon the brink of catastrophe. Massive ships hung threateningly in the void, waiting to fall upon those worlds that harbored demons and mutants, and where the taint of chaos is found in great measure, the Grey Knights are never far behind. The bridge of the Dark Angel's space-bound fortress monastery was colossal in scale. Its vaulted interior could have housed a dozen space-capable vessels. Buttressed walls were lined with statuary, below which shimmered complex hololift data specters that underlit the faces of stone saints with an eerie green glow. Upon a grand dais at the bridge's front, arguments raged and terse orders were bitten out. A sense of destiny hung heavy in the air. Here the fate of the Fenris system and of the Space Wolves chapter itself would be decided forever. Above it all was Supreme Grand Master Azrael, Master of the Dark Angels. No other living space marine had such a deep understanding of that chapter's twilight existence, swathed forever in the shadows of history, and some would say stained with the mire of heresy, completely loyal. Azrael had at his side the interrogator chaplain Asmodai, as stern and obsessive as any who had walked the sacred corridors of the rock or Caliban before it. Asmodai was an expert in the art of rooting out traces of chaos infection from those heretics hidden within the Imperium. But such was the nature and skill of Zench's agent upon the rock's bridge that even he had not divined the architect of their woes. The space wolves were judged in their absence. Under Azrael's orders, none of the Imperial fleet's officers were accepting the Wolf Lord's voxhales, nor opening their astropathic mind choirs to missives from Fenris. The forceful personalities of the Adeptus Astartes clashed, every heated exchange threatening to ignite an internecine war that would have grave implications for the wider Imperium. The fires of strife were fanned at every turn, for amongst the warriors of the Imperium was a force of disharmony embodied, the trickster of Zench. The demonic entity that had infiltrated the bridge crew, known in the sagas of the Space Wolves as the Changeling, was in its element. It had sown confusion and angst throughout Chapter Surf and Space Marine alike, posing as Vox Seneschal Mendaxis, the demon had formally announced to the Dark Angels that the Space Wolves had used the stronghold of Longhowl to open fire on the fleet belonging to the Grey Knights. This news, coming so soon after the picked thief footage of Dark Angel scouts being slain by the Wolven, sealed the guilt of the Sons of Rus in the minds of their prosecutors. The chapter was irrevocably tainted. One of the system's worlds, Midgardia, had already fallen to demonic invasion. Azrael concluded there was no recourse but to scour it clean with the killing fires of Exterminatus, even though there were still space wolves upon its surface. The declaration was met with awed silence, but with Logan Grimnar missing, presumed dead, 
there were few with influence enough to gainsay him. Into these fires of recrimination plunged Brother Captain Stern, en route to the rock's orbit above the fang. The Brother Captain had made common cause with Ragnar Blackmane. The two had fought hard to cleanse the Ramillies-class star fort Myanmar of demonic taint. In an urgent remote conclave with Azrael, they secured permission to come aboard the great space-borne fortress of the Dark Angels. So it was that a wharf-lord strode upon the flagstones of the rock's inner sanctums for the first time in living memory. With Lord Blackmane was an inquisitor by the name of Benest de Mornay, an elderly but mentally formidable member of the Ordo Hereticus. De Mornay had crossed paths with the Dark Angels before, and had his suspicions that the shadow of chaos was cast long across a great many of the Adeptus Astartes, the first legion amongst them. Though many of the Dark Angels upon the bridge assumed the Inquisitor was present to monitor and pass judgment upon the Space Wolves, in truth, De Mornay's vigilance fell not upon the sons of Ras, but those of Lionel Johnson. To their horror, Stern and the other warrior heroes that had approached the rock to consult with Azrael in person found they were too late. The bombardment cannons of the Imperial fleet had already opened fire upon the planets under their gun sights. Midgardia had been subjected to such a brutal and extensive firestorm, its surface was little more than a worldwide conflagration. Morkai's keep upon Frostheim had been blasted to rubble by a lance strike levelled by the calculating Iron Hands chapter. The Fenris system was besieged by both foes and allies and the planets and moons, where the demonic incursions were most apparent, were already suffering grievous wounds under the Crusade fleet's onslaught. The war that Stern and Ragnar had come to stop was already in progress. Trusted brothers at one another's throats. But not the Space Wolves and the Dark Angels, obviously. Everywhere, confusion reigned, inflamed by the wrath of the Crusader and the defiance of the accursed. On the vast hololift displays at the fore of the bridge, the dispositions of the Imperial fleet and the defensive citadels of the Space Wolves flickered and came into focus. The fate of the two rival chapters hung in the balance. The ships of their fellow Adeptus Astartes all but silent as a suffocating miasma of doubt and despair threatened to erase millennia of hard-won brotherhood. Upon the bridge, the parley between traveller and commander was swift and intense. When the echoes of harsh-tongued speeches had faded from the rock's bridge, it was Stern who spoke alone. As a brother captain of the legendary Grey Knights, his words carried gravitas indeed. Surprising, considering they're supposed to be a secret organisation that few know about, even Astartes chapters. He spoke of chaos and those who would spread it. He had already judged the souls of those wolven he had encountered and those of the warriors who had fought alongside them, he had found them sound. However, there was one upon the bridge of the rock who did not belong, who was more than a hidden agent of corruption. He was anarchy incarnate. Stern pointed an accusatory finger at Vox Seneschal Mendaxis and named him for the demon he truly was. A piercing screech filled the incense-scented air. Brother Captain Stern 
cast an outstretched hand towards the uniformed figure of the Vox Seneschal, shouting a phrase of power that made the ears of all who heard it ring. The resinous smoke that hung around the bridge parted, giving shape to the psychic attack as it hurtled towards its intended target. The Vox officer screamed in defiance and slid away with a serpentine spasm, but interrogator chaplain Asmodai was waiting close by. He bellowed his most potent litanies of hate. With such force, the demon recoiled as if physically struck. The false officer's flesh ripped open to reveal a shifting morass of pink-blue hide. Trapped between stern psychic aggression and Asmodai's fierce faith in the Emperor, the imposter illusion came apart like cobwebs in a gale, and the demon beneath was revealed. Laughing eerily, <laughs> the architect of disaster that had been hiding amongst the Adeptus Astartes began to swell and grow. Long blue robes billowed, a vortex of warp energy whipping around the creature as it raised four spindly arms from within its voluminous shroud. Its face remained hidden by a deep hood. Many who witnessed its transformation considered this a mercy, for the presence of a demon was a hideous blight on the sanity, and often a death sentence, even for those who survive it. The great vault of the bridge echoed loud as storm bolter fire crashed and boomed. Each bolt was transmuted to a harmless substance before it struck, turning to sand, to wine, to flitting butterflies with fractal wings. At him! shouted Supreme Grandmaster Azrael, his voice straining with tension. The demon must be slain! Wapspan, I knew it! spat Ragnar nearby, revving his meters-long chainsword Frostfang as he loped towards the pink-skinned demon, spilling from a wound-like breach. These ones fight dirty, but they die all the same. He rolled shoulder first under a spray of mutagenic flame and came up in a lunging thrust, the tip of Frostfang chewing through the throat of a demon herald, even as it sought to summon more of its kin. Ragnar soon lost to sight, demons crowding around him. Azrael knew the creatures went to their deaths. A humorless smile tugged at Azrael's lips as he raised his gun and racked the slide. He opened fire, and the demons turned black, limbs twisted thin as tinder sticks. I purge thee from the sight of the righteous, incanted Azrael, as he strode down the steps to one side of the bridge's command dais. My banish thee with the power of truth. The chapter master raised his relic weapon, the lion's wrath, and sent a burning bolt of plasma right at the Zenshin demon at the heart of the confusion. The creature sketched a complex sigil in the air with all four of its hands before catching the plasma shot as if it were no more harmful than a child's toy. He hurled it back, and Azrael was forced to step aside in haste. The white fire burned a cogitator bank to molten ruin behind him. As he moved, the Supreme Grand Master sent three bolter shells screaming towards the changeling, but these it simply flicked from existence with its long fingers, one after another. To his right, Azrael saw Brother Captain Stern run hard at the changeling, great swords swinging. Two cackling pink horrors interposed themselves to save their master, 
but were swiftly bisected by the Grey Knight's blade. Bubbling from their remains came grumbling blue horrors that snatched at Stern's legs as he charged forwards. The Grey Knight burnt them away with a blast of white mine fire and forged onwards. Barely slowed, Stern waded through the morass of demon spawn, his blade levelled to impale the changeling. With a thrust he ran the creature through, only for it to shimmer and disappear. It was merely another illusion, cast to cover its retreat. The trickster thing was already far to the right, disappearing down a sconce-lined corridor with the bubbling remains of two hulking guard servitors left in its wake. After it! shouted Azrael. Run it down and banish it, or there will be hell to pay. With the changeling summonings leading to demonic incursions in several locations upon the rock, the Dark Angels and their allies scrambled to contain the warp breach before it was too late. In the space of a few heartbeats, those who had accused the space wolves of malefic taint had themselves become the accursed. The bridge of the rock was a scene of utter bedlam, with the changeling covering its escape by summoning Zenshin demons into the path of the pursuing Dark Angels. The once sombre and doom-laden atmosphere had been replaced by a deafening cacophony. Screams of horror, shouted orders and detonating bolter shells mingled with the hoots, cackles and chanted incantations of the demonic invaders. The unmistakable scent of hydrocordite and prometheum choked the air, chasing away the subtler scent of holy incense. Chapter serfs died by the score. Even space marine officers were laid low as they fought. Limbs blasted to molten gobbets or torsos turned to glowing glass by the sheets of warp flame hurled their way. It did not take the Dark Angels long to recover, as robed warriors ran in from archways and vestibules. A company of heroes assembled upon the flagstones of the bridge, bolters spitting death. They gave not an inch of ground, though many turned pale the warp spawn unleashed in their midst, and the fires of change crackling at their feet. Several squads knelt in firing lines in order to form living bulwarks against the strange invasion. Their shoulders turned towards the foe. Their brothers ran close behind them in order to close the net. Wherever their shots hit home, the pink-skinned demons would burst apart as if made of no more than food sludge only for two blue-skinned forms to coagulate from their blasted remains. When those grumbling by-blows were put down by pinpoint fire, they too were replaced, each yielding a pair of yellow demon mites that crept from the fires of their predecessors' demise. The sons of the lion fought as one, locking their fields of fire to squad after squad. Wherever the largest and most decorated demons encountered their strange spells, the Deathwing struck. Grandmaster Balliol's honor guard charged into the fight as a force of nature, obliterating their enemies with powered fists, claws and hammers, and blasting apart the stragglers with punishing stormbolter fire. They left a trail of bubbling ectoplasm in their wake as they slew. Azrael and his fellow heroes were long gone. They had realized that the thronging demons were but a distraction, the changeling was the true mastermind behind the attack, and it had to be stopped before it could bring further havoc to the scions of the Imperium. 
As they ran, Stern made psychic contact with the warriors of his brotherhood, commanding them to gain access to the rock by any means necessary and eliminate the demon threat. Within minutes, a strike force of silvered paladins appeared upon the bridge of the rock in a blaze of strange light. By summoning and stepping through this psychic portal, they burned out many of the carefully etched wards that prevented etheric travel to and from the rock's bridge. Much as the fallen Primarch Magnus once blew out the sorcerous defences of the Empress Palace in his urgent need to tell the master of mankind of Horus's treachery. The Grey Knights considered it worth the cost. A skirling laugh emerged from three of the changeling's mouths as it darted away from the rock's labyrinthine corridors. So many of its plans had reached their apex, each bearing the delicious fruit of irony, confusion and best of all, treachery in the name of justice. It was being hunted by some of the Imperium's most self-righteous warriors, each of whom was an expert in the field of destroying the works of chaos, but it felt not a flicker of fear. Zealots were often the easiest to fool. The changeling pushed ever further into the gigantic vessel, every twisting corridor and rune-sealed vault only adding to its delight. Close on its heels were Azrael and Asmodai of the Dark Angels, leaving the battle on the bridge in the hands of Baliel and the Deathwing. They had little option, in truth. Both Grandmaster and Interrogator Chaplin knew full well that should an agent of the Dark Gods reveal the secret history of their order, the persecution of the wider Imperium would fall upon them too. They were accompanied by Demone, Stern and Ragnar Blackmane, each a powerful champion of the Imperium in his own right, and bane of the Chaos Hordes. As this strange band made their way through the hallways and chain naves of the rock, they encountered the traps and traces their quarry had left behind. They banished scrap code glitches that turned machinery against them, repelled demon ambush, and discovered the bodies of those the Changeling had impersonated when it had bound the Dark Angel so thoroughly into its plans. The remains of Vox Seneschal Mandaxis, the comatose interrogator chaplain Elazar, and a dozen others besides formed a disturbing trail for them to follow. Azrael demanded that his allies stay close. To stray was to invite the wrath of the first, a chapter known not only for their epithet, the Unforgiven, but also for their lack of forgiveness in turn. With his impostor's ruse uncovered, the changeling made haste for the cells in which these mysteries were held safe. Should the Dark Angel's deepest secrets be revealed to the Grey Knights and the Inquisition, the chapter would likely be excommunicated. He had studied the nuanced whispers of the inner circle for some time since invigiling his way into the command structure of the rock, and believed himself capable of locating their precious sanctums despite the myriad defences and bluffs that kept them hidden. After all, he was an entity that had roamed the crystal labyrinth of Zench. Next to that impossible realm, a thought maze devised by even the most gifted mortal genius was child's play. Sure enough, as the changeling wove his glamours, one code-sealed vault after another was opened with a hiss of servo-motors. With the chapters of the Adeptus Astartes opening fire upon each other's ships and raining fire upon the domains of the Fenris system, the demon's duty to Magnus the Red had been fulfilled.
it was owed a little fun. The changeling chaplain strode onwards through the shadows, flickering sconces glinting in the sheen of the demon's armour. The surety and authority in the creature's every step was a better shield than the sombre black battle-plate of the interrogator whose appearance he wore. No buzzing servo-skulls here, their picked thief lenses recording events for later dissection. No gormless vassals bothering him with the sheer mundanity of their gaze. The First Legion valued their secrecy above all else. What a glorious irony it would be if the Dark Angels' persecution of the Space Wolves, based on claims of deviance and the taint of the heretic, were to lead directly to their own trial for the very same charges. The idea of setting the Loyalists against one another, exposing their most carefully guarded secrets for all to see, was intoxicating. Even now, he could hear the lords and masters of the rival chapters coming after him with all the subtlety of a runaway tank. Stifling a manic laugh, the changeling pressed his rosarius against a hidden recess in a marble archway. The portal slid open. It was time for change. Though Elazar, the interrogator chaplain, strode into the vaulted doorway, Supreme Grandmaster Azrael strode out. The tall, grim figure sketched the symbol of the first circle in the air, and the sentry guns beyond the doorway powered down. He entered a massive antechamber, soundproofed cells ranged along each wall. The smell of burnt umber and sandalwood resin could not hide the underlying scent of blood, nor could the sibilant chanting of dead-eyed excoriator cherubim silence the echoes of so many screams. I have come for the fallen, said the changeling, Azrael's noble tones, giving his statement an air of command. There is nothing left to learn, came a weary protestation from the farthest chamber. The voice was scratchy and hoarse, but a shred of defiance was underneath it still. You have taken everything we have to give. Things are different this time, said the imposter, Azrael, as he approached pressing the hilt of the Sword of Secrets against the Castellan-class gatelock. The portal clunked heavily, and the las bars that formed a portcullis in the mouth of the chamber crackled as they disappeared. The shadowy figure beyond half stood. His lean but muscular body was tense as a spring. This time, nameless one, said Azrael, might give you freedom. As the changeling had fled through the rock, it had summoned more of its kin from the ether, thinning the veil between real space and the warp with its strange sorceries. Hundreds of demons of Zench had been summoned into the fortress monastery, appearing without warning upon the bridge and at eight sigil-marked locations besides. Their heralds had capered and cartwheeled past runic countermeasures that would once have slain them in an instant, but were now burnt out by the haste and force of the Grey Knight's appearance within the rock's bounds. Already, the demon infestation was spreading. The Changeling had foreseen the Dark Angels bringing every weapon they could to bear against the intruders. But that, too, was a path wrought with peril. Given each Zenshin horror's ability to split into two when slain, there was a chance that to fight the Demon Horde was to increase its numbers, 
and unwittingly spread the danger even further throughout the rock. Grandmaster Baliel, assuming the defence of the fortress monastery's main decks, whilst his superiors ran for its hidden heart, set into motion a strategy of defence he had long since perfected. Taking the centre of the bridge with his chosen few around him in a tight knot, Baliel gave the Order of the Shield's Edge. In doing so, he bade the rest of his company spread out as much as they were able. His death wings split up and fought hard to the very perimeter of the bridge, fighting not as squads but as individual warriors. Power fists crushed, lightning claws slashed, and thunder hammers pulverized. As the corpse of each Zenshin demon bubbled and began to yield two more, heavy flamers roared sanctified Prometheum fires, and the threat was burned away. Where a battle brother fell, the others would compensate, fighting on until they reached the edge of the vast chamber before turning around. Certain that no demon was behind them, the Deathwing fought to close their circle once more. It was then the slaughter began in earnest. Caught between the crossfire of Baliol's squad and the rest of his outer circle, the demons were decimated. By the time the Deathwing's other units had joined ranks with the innermost circle, only the mightiest of the infernal intruders fought on. Even as Grandmaster Baliol fought, he coordinated the actions of his brethren. The outriders of the Ravenwing were authorised to ride their steeds within the monastic corridors and chambers that formed each zone's intercies. Though Grandmaster Samuel and his strike force were already bound for Fenris, those bikers he had left to guard the rock sped after their Black Knight leaders on intercept courses that led them straight for the forward elements of the demon invasion. Corridors reverberated to the roar of finely tuned engines and the crash of Baltifire as running battles broke out between Ravenwing Battle Brothers and Razor-Finned Screamers, Chainswords lashing out and explosions tearing apart ancient statuary in a contest of speed as much as finesse. Spark trailing chariots, their sentient disc bodies linked to winged demon beasts at their fore, bore demon heralds and looming flamers along the corridors at breakneck speed. The riders hurled bolts of mutagenic magic left and right until guttering corpses lined the flagstones and the rock's sconce-lined walls ran like water. Back on the bridge, the macro-holograph of the rock that hovered above the sanctum strategium lit with a profusion of alert runes. Battle had been joined in a dozen theatres, each fiercer than the last. Amongst all the carnage, a pair of small but powerful demons rode their disc steed unnoticed through the vaults. Though not even the changeling knew it, there were those in the Dark Angel's demands who fought quite another battle altogether. The deep dungeons of the rock were cold and dank, moist with condensation redolent of wet rock. Pressing forward into the gloom were Azrael, Asmodai and their allies, Brother Captain Stern guided their path, for despite the Dark Angel's expertise in hunting fugitives, he alone was able to detect the warp spore of the demon. Azrael was not pleased when Brother Aelos and Lavriel, members of the Death Wing's inner circle, barred his path into the lowest levels of the rock with the claim that the Supreme Grand Master had already passed through a few minutes before. Azrael 
was all cold efficiency, explaining quickly that they hunted a trickster demon and that the creature had taken his likeness in order to bypass their defences. He proved his claim by placing his eye against the arch oculus veratus as it chimed. The battle brothers lowered their halberds and let the officers pass. As the fellowship drove on into the bowels of the fortress monastery, Azrael assured Stern, Blackmane and Demorne that he and Asmodai had the matter of the changeling's banishment in hand. There was no need for such a concentration of authority, said Azrael. In fact, those unfamiliar with the rock's layout may slow its occupants down in their hunt. Their efforts were likely better spent aiding the greater war effort rather than pursuing a single demon. Despite the gravity of Azrael's tone, all three champions of the Imperium elected to continue their hunt. Though it galled the minds of the Dark Angels to witness it, the Changeling had used its perfect impersonation of Azrael to bypass every sanctum-locked vault door, gene-coded Laz barrier and autophonic cage that guarded the lower levels of the rock. The occasional corpse marked the site of conflict between a guard that had not been fooled so easily, but there was no sign of the demon interloper. The heroes hunted their quarry through the great dark chambers designed to hold those heretical brothers the Dark Angels knew as the Fallen. As they passed along the processionals and interrogators' crypts, they found a once blank portion of the wall open, its hinged door creaking gently and its hex seals shattered. Asmodai lashed out in frustration with his crozarius as he passed the elaborate doorway, a shower of blue sparks in his wake. The changeling would pay dearly for his work here. Further into the rock, the heroes delved, the gene seal of the true Azrael enough to ensure their passage through even the most redoubtable portal. A horrible suspicion had been haunting the Supreme Grand Master, and with every direction given unto them by Stern, that feeling turned from a vague possibility to concrete certitude. The changeling sought the nemesis of the lion himself. The Grand Master was correct. The Changeling sought to release Lionel Johnson's archenemy, Luther of Caliban, from his cell, freeing the ancient warrior to tell the dire truth of the Dark Angel's history to the Grey Knights and Inquisition alike. In the process, he also sought to open the cells of the Fallen, each of whom represented a dark blemish on the honour of the Dark Angel's chapter. To the demon, the revelations they would impart to the rest of the Imperium would be sweet indeed. With the greatest concentration of cells within arm's reach, the changeling found his way barred, not by the embattled heroes, but by a diminutive figure that was hidden entirely by white robes and carried a graven crozius in both arms. The demon recoiled in horror, for the creature before it was anathema to its kind. The creature focused its baleful glare, and the changeling turned and fled. With that, the changeling's confidence in his own schemes was broken. Fate, that most poisonous and fickle of serpents, was writhing out of his grasp, threatening to close its fangs upon the demon instead of dancing to his charmer's tune. His flight through the rock led him not to safety, but into the path of the hunters that pursued him. Within seconds the dark chamber was full of strobing light and deafening noise. The changeling called into being a chattering riot of horrors, sending them against the heroes. He then took a variety of forms, each the nemesis of one of his hunters, 
as overlapping chants and insults spilled from its nine mouths. The wolf lord Ragnar Blackmane confronted his old enemy Maddox once more, growling in frustration and having to kill the Thousand Sun sorcerer all over again. Azriel saw a hudded gunfighter with a giant sword slung across his back. Last, but most terrifying of all, Brother Captain Stern was confronted by Imkashan, the towering lord of change that had proven his bane for decades. Fell laughter rang through the chamber, the lunacy in its timbre so potent it threatened to overwhelm the senses. Ultimately, though, the conjoined phantoms were but a demon's deceit given form. One by one they were overcome by the heroes that sought the changeling's demise. In its mounting panic the demon found his subterfuges unravelling. When Ragnar Blackmane darted in and drove his kraken-toothed blade Frostfang into the demon's robed form, it struck with killing force. The trickster's form dwindled, vanishing into a rift in reality as if it were a tainted swirl of water into a deep pit. The changeling's curse upon the rock was finally over. Within hours the hunters had regained the bridge, concentrating their efforts on expunging the demon infestation from the fortress monastery. Aware now that he had been the victim of chaos trickery and that the eye of suspicion may fall upon his own chapter as a result, Azrael ordered the Dark Angel's fleet to stand down. They would cease their bombardments and instead patrol the wider Fenris sector, focusing on hunting down and exterminating those appearances of the Thousand Suns in other star systems. Those chapters that had a presence in the Fenris system were soon to follow suit. The Space Wolves were not the true threat here. That much had become abundantly clear. The Desolation of Midgardia Midgardia is a world covered in fungal vegetation, so toxic its populace has largely been forced to live within the planet's crust. The world has a long history of calamity, but the hardships of everyday life there have made for a people tough in body and soul, further hardened by endless toil in the medefactoriums and armorsmiths complexes. There are fortified hives and orbital defences upon Midgardia's surface, including the Nova Cannon battery Emperor's Judgment, but the vast majority of its worker tribes dwell in subterranean habs, nodes of industry amongst the strange walkway cities that hang amongst the roots of the world. The Midgardians are no strangers to fire and brimstone, for in places their dwellings hang over the magma that flows through the planet's crust. When the demonic infestation struck their planet, the worker citizens were plunged into a nightmare that would seal their fates. The first catastrophe to befall Midgardia was vile and inescapable. Perhaps the worst of all the many dooms the Dark Gods visited upon the worlds under the guardianship of Fenris. Warp rifts had been opened across the system by the rituals of the Alpha Legion, and the most vital worlds and planetoids had been claimed by one of the ruinous powers. Midgardia, being both fertile and toxic at the same time, was highly prized by Grandfather Nurgle. As warp storms roiled under the wolf's eye, the neighbouring planet to Fenris was quickly infested by contagions so virulent they turned Midgardia's jungles into landscapes reminiscent of Nurgle's garden. Midgardia had once been second only in importance to Fenris in terms of military power, 
and Logan Grimnar himself had resolved to excise that which was corrupting it. He led his fabled champions of Fenris and their wolven brothers directly into the planet's underworld, seeking to hunt down the demonic force behind the infestation. Meanwhile, the armies of Eagle Ironwolf took war to Midgardia's surface. Eagle's great company started with the noblest of intentions, his strategy to locate and slay the demon warlord at the heart of the invasion. The Iron Wolves were, in theory, ideally suited to the task, for they were experts in armoured warfare and invariably went to battle in great tank formations. The steel and adamantium of their Spear of Rus armoured columns safeguarded their occupants from the worst of the supernatural diseases that festered in the muck, just as their ceramite armour protected them from the pus-weeping blades of the demons that engaged at close quarters. Making planetfall at the Magma Gates, a group of hive cities that form the entrance to the planet's underworld, the Ironwolves and the armoured elements of Grimnar's own company made swift gains. Each tank wedge proved powerful enough to bully a path through the corrupted foliage of Midgardia, while blasting apart the plague-bearing hordes lurking in the spore-thickened mist. The demons hunting the fungal forests around the hive cities were destroyed in an overlapping killstorm, a strike so savage it gave credence to the old wolf's claims that Midgardia could still be saved. Before too long, however, the tables had turned. It was not the fungi of Midgardia nor the demon invaders that saw Eagle Ironwolf's counter-invasions falter, but the thick layer of muck that smothered the planet's surface. The endless quagmire took a slow but irresistible toll, bogging down even the most aggressive of the great company's tanks. One after another, the spears of Russ ground to a halt. Worse, the corrupted spore mists had thickened to the point they ate through the joints of even the most finely wrought power armour. What had started as a lightning-fast attack was beginning to fall into a crippling stasis. For every minute the Iron Wolves spent grinding into the slop, yet more plague demons converged on their position. Many a proud Femrisian met a repulsive end in that fetid morass, more ominous still, the warriors had lost contact with Logan Grimnar's strike force altogether. The last communication from the Great Wolf's position had been a deafening rumble. Egil Ironwolf was unwilling to abandon his king. After ascertaining there was an access tunnel to the Midgardian underworld relatively close to their position, Egil ceded command to his battle leader Conran and led a recovery expedition of his closest warriors to search for the Great Wolf. Even as Igil departed, Conran made a set of quick assessments and came to a grave conclusion. He inserted a rune-carved data spike into the cybernetic implants at the back of his head, his attendant Servo Skull chattering out a complex litany of binaric cant. Upon the bridge of Igil's flagship, the Wolf Tide, a silver inlaid skull did the same. Conran's decision was as brave as it was bold. He had ordered a localised orbital barrage upon his own position. Megatons of ordnance rained from the skies even as Conran's warriors embarked upon their thick-hulled transports. Their vehicles rendered little more than gun bunkers by grasping tendrils and sucking bogs. The demons they had fought amongst the swamps were hard on their heels, but the scions of Nurgle have never been known for their quickness. Though the straggling Ironwolves caught in the mire were pulled down and slain, the vast majority broke off their combat in good order. 
No sooner had the Space Wolves regained their beleaguered vehicles than the ground shook with the power of orbital barrage. The accuracy of the orbital strike was a testament not only to Conrad's excellent judgement, but also his sense of timing. Rhinos, land raiders and razorbacks were rocked on their suspension by the mind-numbing violence of each explosion, but although many an armoured hide was deeply scarred, only five of the vehicles were rendered inoperable. As the barrage tracked through the jungle, two of the stricken tanks were brought back to fighting strength by the ministrations of the strike force's iron priests. Undaunted, the space walls fought onwards. The same could not be said for the demons of Nurgle. The pustulant creatures that were drawing the Iron Wolves into the sickening embrace of the Plague God felt no need to armour themselves against the hazards of Midgardia. Disease and infection were meat and drink to them, and the fronds of the polluted jungle caressed them like favoured pets. Though their hides were tough, they were nothing next to the kinetic storm that broke upon them. Warheads built to shatter bunker complexes blasted huge steaming craters in the jungle, each killing scores of demons in an instant. Scything shrapnel whipped out in a thousand directions at once, ricocheting harmlessly from the armoured flanks of the Space Wolves' vehicles, but messily eviscerating the warp-spawned tallymen that pressed in around them. Blistering walls of flame scoured clean the shattered landscape over and over again, burning away those demons that had somehow survived the killing force of the initial barrage. Perhaps most vital of all the barrage's effects was the evaporation of the sludge that had held the tank columns fast. Around the Iron Wolves, the landscape turned instantly to steam and hard-burned earth where viscous muck once oozed. Freed from Midgardia's cloying grip at last, the Spears of Rus gave thanks to their federal machine spirits and ground steadily out of the trap that had closed around them. Though swarms of plague drones descended to intercept them, and gamboling beasts of Nurgle burst from fungus copses to bound pall-mall at the armoured column, the Iron Wolves would not be stopped. Pinpoint fire from the Godhammer pattern las cannons of land raiders worked in concert with thunderous blasts from Vindicator tanks, putting paid to those demons not already blasted to clouds of foul-smelling mist by the rolling barrage from Wolftide and its kin. Within the hour, Conran's vehicular packs were safely within the magma gates. For his part, Eagle Ironwolf was already underground. His mission was no longer one of eradication, but of salvation. For Fenris, to weather the storm breaking upon it, Logan Grimnar and his Kingsguard must be found. Though Eagle and his Ironwolves feared them lost, the High King of Fenris and his warriors were still fighting tooth and nail against the forces of chaos. They had found the makers of Midgardia's downfall in the depths of the planet's caverns. Their determined push through the reaches of the undercity Deep Spark saw them fight through countless lesser demons, only to drive straight into an ambush set by their masters. Not one, but four demon princes had they fought in that dark and claustrophobic underworld, each bringing an army of fiends against Logan and his warriors. To bind four such disparate warlords in a single cause was a rare feat indeed, but behind their alliance was Magnus the Red, and few in the Eye of Terror dared gainsay a demon primarch. Magnus's plan was to bury the Great Wolf. 
removing him from the grand game they were playing for Fenris. No glorious warrior's death for the master of the space walls. Just thousands of tons of rock to crush him like an insect. The demonic masters of misrule, working under Magnus's command, had engaged Grimnar and his warriors in person. For a while it seemed they would triumph, but even the favoured of the Chaos Gods finds the Space Wolves hard targets. Through heroism, cunning and bloody-mindedness, the Kingsguard and their wolven allies fought back, cutting down the foe with blade, hammer and claw. Though several of their most trusted companions died in the fight, the Kingsguard and their lupine kin overcame the ambushing armies, and then, at a keening signal, the demon princes and their vassals simply vanished. The trap was sprung. With an ear-shattering boom, the sudden etheric shockwave caused by the demon's departure saw the roof of the war-torn cavern come crashing down. Grimnar hurled himself protectively over the prone body of a fallen wolven, many of his Kingsguard doing likewise for they knew that without Terminator armour to protect them, their kin would surely perish. Down the rocks came, hundreds of tons collapsing at once. In places the cavern's roof held, and many of the strike force survived, albeit trapped in choking darkness. Logan himself was pinned under a massive stalactite, wounded but alive. Many of his finest warriors met the end of their sagas that day. Crushed to death, even though they wore the finest armour available to their chapter. Without aid... And with the sheer depth of rock rendering them impossible to reach via long-range comms, the champions of Fenris had been buried alive. Seven miles south of the Magma Gates, Eagle Ironwolf had left his tanks behind in order to lead a detachment of his finest warriors into the Midgardian underworld. His journey through the tunnels and walkways saw many a civilian dart furtively into the shadows, for despite the hellish fate visited upon it, the planet still harboured many millions of men, women and children. Some of these natives saw Eagle Ironwolf as a warrior from legend, kneeling before him as he passed. Others cowered, afraid that this cog-toothed brute was there to put them down for the crime of cowardice. He ignored them all. The Great Wolf was lost, and it was up to the Iron Wolves to find him. Deeper and deeper the Space Wolves delved, fighting diseased horrors, chortling plague heralds and repulsive demon flies. As they plumbed the lower depths, their company was relieved beyond measure to make contact with outlying elements of the champions of Fenris. Before they could properly consolidate their forces, they were ambushed by a segmented plague wyme the size of a mag train. The monstrosity took a horrible toll before it was blown apart from the inside by a well-placed grenade. Warriors were laid low by dismemberment and contagion, but united they pressed on. At one juncture they passed through the site of a fierce battle, including the gilded wolf's skull that formed the crown of Grimnar's prized Terminator armour. Invigorated, they increased their pace. Midgardia's interior was a labyrinth. Many of its passageways had been blocked by fallen rocks, and the Iron Wolves had not the time to comb every last tunnel for signs of the High King of Fenris. Still, he remained missing. With great reluctance, Eagle announced he would return to the surface of Midgardia. He was straying to the very limit of Vox contact, and had heard disturbing fragments of a distress call from his men high above. What he found upon his return shocked him far more than the sight of any demon. Midgardia's surface had been scoured by the flames of Exterminatus, 
From the spires of the magma gates, Lord Ironwolf saw nothing but ash stretching away to the distant horizon. The world had been enveloped by a conflagration so fierce that no living thing could survive it, be it man or demon. All that remained of the once fetid landscape was an ocean of grey dunes, stubs of burned trees jutting out amongst a red-hot gale of embers. No normal fleet could have brought such world-killing wrath in so short a time. This was the work of the lords of the Imperium, swift and merciless beyond measure. Countless innocent hives would have burned alive alongside the demons the Inferno had been sent to slay. The Iron Wolf grimly ran his calculations, concluding there was only a small chance of their escaping the planet alive if they tarried long in the wake of the Exterminators. He called upon his own fleet assets once more, insertion craft answering his summons to bear his strike force off-planet at speed. In doing so, he learned in full of the massive Imperial fleet that had entered Fenrisian space with the intent of burning the chaos taint from every world it had touched. At that fleet's head was the rock. The masters of that impossibly vast craft had rained fire upon Midgardia when the space wolves had still been present, but more importantly, had consigned millions of the Fenris system civilians to a horrifying death without trial. Incensed beyond measure, Eagle sent a Vox summons to the Dark Angel's fortress monastery, demanding his views be heard. It was refused. So it was that Eagle ordered his gunners to open fire on the nearest Dark Angel's fleet. He intended the volley to force a communication rather than to cause significant damage, and as Lord Ironwolf had calculated, its impact was dissipated by its target's void shields. Even so, the decision to open fire upon Astarte's craft would live on in the annals of the Fang and the Rock alike. It was an act of defiance that would stand as a blemish upon the honour of Iggyl Ironwolf forevermore. Unable to ignore this act of outright hostility, the Rock opened its comms channels to the etheric summons from Iggyl's fleet, intending to level the most stringent of punitive terms. Vox Seneschal Mendaxis, still in actuality the Changeling, did his best to fan the flames between the outraged Wolf Lord and the Grand Master of the Dark Angels, and many a shot was fired across the bows of another. Yet the bonds of brotherhood between the warriors of the Adeptus Astartes are not easily put aside. As the realisation of their deeds sank in, the officers of each fleet considered backing down by ordering a ceasefire. It was Conran's questions upon the missing High King of Fenris that poured cold water upon the fires of Igil's wrath. It was common knowledge that the Space Wars preferred not to teleport, and the depths at which Grimnar was buried made an imprecise rematerialization risky in the extreme. But was there truly no way the sons of Rus could retrieve him? The Iron Wolf shut off his communique with the Rock, focusing his efforts on recovery. Once his strategic duties as Wolf Lord had been attended to in person, Eagle enacted a tactical solution of impressive insight. He took the gilded wolf skull that had been the capstone of Grimnar's armour to his advisers. Room priests and iron priests alike lit tallow candles around a rune caller's sigil, and the skull was placed in the heart of the right symbol the better for the soul within to be awakened. Slowly, with incredible patience, the priests of Igil's Brotherhood coaxed the spirit of that once proud lupine into their sigh communion, 
The soul beast was irascible and fierce, but once placated with offerings of blood mist and rune-inscribed amber, it gave them its grudging attention. The spirit knew that it had been severed from the one it called Alpha, the only soul to have dominion over it. On some level, it could feel the keening of its master's soul, as well as the machine spirit of that great suit of Terminator armour from which it had been torn. By following the silvered thread of energy between the broken crown and its owner, the rune priest Svelgar hoped to pinpoint Grimnar's whereabouts beneath the burning surface of Midgardia. The wolf time draws nigh. The omens that spoke of Fenris's future were dark indeed. Here, the malefic genius of Magnus had been wrought large. The worlds under the ward of the Space Wolves were burning, and their allies had been turned against them to the point of open violence. It was worse to come, for the sons of Ras had yet to experience the full extent of Magnus's plans. The skies of Fenris were ablaze. All across the planet, glimmering lights that savage tribesmen had taken as omens of salvation grew larger and more menacing. Slowly, they resolved into jagged, spined shapes. Upon their upper plains, twisting walkways and spiralling towers gave the impression of some wondrous, magisterial visitation, but the cannons cresting the lower ramparts were those of a fortress built only for war. The silver towers of Zench descended, and they brought with them the bane of wolves. Colossal in size, and staggering in their complexity, the silver towers scar the minds of all who look upon them. They are the citadels and spires of ancient Prospero, torn free by sorcery, but at the same time they are fragments of Zench's crystal labyrinth, bequeathed unto his most devious servants, so they might spread his chaotic influence in real space. The enchanted silver towers float through the skies, arcane lightning playing around the strange structures at their base, oppressive and maddening to behold. They are the strongholds of Magnus's chosen. Many are studied with deadly cannons and arcane guns. Yet they are not bound to a single locale, nor a single dimension. The master of each tower simply has to will his fortress to move, and it floats eerily through reality at his bidding. The appearance of one silver tower is enough to spell doom for a civilized world. Upon Fenris, no less than nine of these surreal fortifications descended from space, each aligned with a sight of geomantic power. The Changeling had sown disharmony and confusion throughout Imperial High Command, his gambit culminating in the searing bombardment of Midgardia. Magnus, watching from his tower in the warp, had found the spectacle most pleasing. However, for Magnus's full ambition to become a reality, the sons of Rus could not meet their demise in so simple and impersonal a fashion as orbital eradication. Not even the ultimate betrayal of Exterminatus would suffice. For the grand ritual he had set in motion to succeed, events had to mirror those of Prospero's last days as closely as possible. Psychic impulses soared from Magnus's immortal psyche, 
each imparted visions, spurring a sorcerer or agent of chaos to enact the next phase of his interlocking, millennia-old plan for the doom of Fenris. Many of the sovereign domains of Rus had been the target of orbital barrage, from those they once considered allies. The peoples that made their home amongst them all but atomized by the violence of the strikes leveled upon them. With the defenders of those beleaguered orbs reeling and the sudden maelstrom inflicted upon them, these planets and moons would be easy prey for the legions of executioners descending upon them, each invader ready to finish the job with bolt and blade. It was a familiar tale to those who survived the raising of Prospero, though this time the space wolves were the victims rather than the perpetrators. Upon Asaheim, the colossal fortress of the Fang rose above the plateau to pierce the pregnant clouds above. Second only in size and power to the Emperor's Palace on Terror, it was built to house a space marine legion at the height of its strength. Defence lasers and macro cannons jutted from the towers like the smaller peaks on the shoulders of a soaring mountain. So tall was this colossal edifice that around its uppermost spires the lights of docking spacecraft could be seen. A more potent defence against orbital attack it was hard to imagine. But the fortress monastery could not cover every corner of Fenris with its gaze, no matter its might and the eyes of its sentinels were upon the Imperial fleet that had bombarded Midgardia scant hours ago. Magnus had felt the fangs bite before, and was in no hurry to do so again. The Crimson King instead ordered his shattered legion not to approach Asaheim directly, but to make planetfall over the vast ice flows locked together by the Fenrisian Hellwinter. One by one, the silver towers of the Thousand Suns descended from outer space, floating down from the warp rifts torn in the Fenris system like knives falling point-first into a frozen sea. Some hung in the orbit around Fenris, whilst others slid silently through the clouds on the far side of the planet from the Fang, approaching their ultimate destination obliquely and concealed from every manner of scrying device by potent shadow magics. In the most desolate regions of Fenris, the masters of these vast towers conjured storms of etheric energy that whipped snow and ice into whirling hurricanes around them, further hiding their magnificence from the scry corvids of the Thang. In the eye of each storm, the silver towers glided in stately silence towards set geomantic points, convergences of natural ley lines where the energies of the death world raged fiercest. Each Zenshin tower held so much eldritch power that the ground was racked with change and its passage. As the tower of Axept, the Ingrate, swept past, permafrost melted and turned to blood as if Fenris itself was wounded by its presence. In the shadow of the Bellgate Citadel, brimstone flames caught above the virgin snow to crackle and dance, given demonic life to caper in the tower's wake. Around the fortress of Paradox, squalls of copper-hued rain turned tribesmen and ice mammoths alike into weightless ebony statues that floated slowly upwards, levitating ever higher until they drifted off into space. Though the Thousand Suns had taken pains to descend beyond the Fang's reach, an invasion of such immense magnitude could not go unnoticed. Room priests cast their stones, each reading direr than the last. 
A terrible doom had come to the Fenris system in the readings of the astropaths and inquisitors of the Imperial fleet. The Emperor's tarot showed the serpent of flame yawning wide to consume every mortal land. The fabled last saga, when all things would meet a violent end, was unfolding before their eyes. The wolf time was upon them. It was Harold Deathwolf who hunted down the first of the Silver Towers, at that time hovering above the immense Rockshire Glacier. Lord Deathwolf had recently returned from Svelgard with the Fire Howlers after combining forces not only with Bran Redmore, but also with the Iron Hands, Shadow Haunters and Ultramarines, in the banishment of the demon hordes that sought to conquer the islands of that oceanic realm. Whilst mustering with several of his fellow wolf lords within the Fang, Lord Deathwolf was hailed with such urgency his vassal astropath went into a spasming frenzy. Once the Psyker had been bathed in sanctified oils and calmed enough to relay the message, he spoke in quivering tones of the awful truth imparted to him by the Grey Knights that had mind-scried the planet from orbit. The forces of the Great Enemy had somehow gained the ice flows of the southern continent. They were slaughtering or abducting every mortal tribe they could find. Though the Grey Knights were making haste to reach the planet, only the Space Wolves stood a chance of intercepting the invaders before the people of the Southern Flows met a grisly end. Harald's deep growl grew louder. These ancient traitors that dared trespass upon Fenris had to be tracked down and slain. Their corpses left for ice trolls, wolf packs and carrion crows to devour. For the Death Wolves to attack directly would have been to forego their greatest asset, the raw cunning of the hunter. A frontal assault was not their way. Instead, Lord Death Wolf proposed that honour should go to Sven Bloodhow. His great company boasted so many jump-packed troops that a skyborne assault upon the flanks of a silver tower was quite feasible, and his battle-hungry warriors certainly had the temperament for it. When the telepath's missive carrying Harold's proposal reached him, Lord Bloodhowl scowled, but did not shirk from the idea. Time was of the essence, especially with the tribes of the Rockja Peaks in such imminent jeopardy. Mounted in Thunderhawk and Stormwolf gunships, Harald and Sven's great companies made haste through the mounting blizzards towards the realm of Rockja. They headed for the mountain range the deaf wolves Astropath had seen in his vision. Harald's hunter instincts were strong, and he peeled off as they approached to encircle the prey. Sure enough, something shimmered in the far distance between the second and third peaks, a swirl of kaleidoscopic colour woven around the invading fortress like loose wool around a silver spindle. No sooner had they laid eyes upon the strange apparition than distant cannons boomed. No iron shot soared towards them, but searingly bright spheres of pink flame. Those gunships, too slow to evade, were hit, swathed in strangely coloured fires. Some dived low into the blizzard and effected a controlled crash landing, the icy bite of Fenris saving those inside, the stricken vehicle from being burned alive. Others were not so lucky. Their gunships were torn apart in mid-air as if by the hands of some invisible giant. Chunks of wreckage and mutilated bodies were scattered across the pristine ice. But the survivors did not slow, for Sven was a firm believer that attack was the best form of defence. Just as the wolf lords had foreseen, 
The strength of the invaders was not confined to the strange citadel in the distance. As the blizzard howled and swirled, those space wolves who had crawled, dazed from the wreckage of their gunships, peered into the middle distance. Their senses were so sharp they could see armoured figures stalking through the knifing sleet, the oncomers moving as if the storm were no more than a summer breeze. Every one of the figures approaching them was clad in the tall, helmeted, baroque armour of the Thousand Suns. The war howl went up, long and threatening. Grey hunters raised bolters to their shoulders, even as blood claws and lone wolves raced into the swirling snows with chainswords revving. A vendetta, ten thousand years in the making, was about to be reignited. The gunships of the two great companies soared at top speed through the blizzard towards the storm-blurred tower of Akzept ahead. Their engines roared like beasts on the hunt as they bullied through the tempest. Thunderhawks sent laser beams as thick as men's thighs, stabbing out from their dorsal cannons, each shot aimed to tear down a spire of the hovering fortress. The volley was to no avail. The shots dissipated into fractal-edged deltas of energy as they struck the tower's strange force fields. In return, spiralling bolts of light speared through the snows from the arcane cannons of the Silver Tower, but wherever the kinetic bolts would have smashed into an oncoming craft, the storm buffeted the gunship aside at the last second. It seemed like Sven Bloodhow's reckless assault had a chance of succeeding after all. Through the storm came shoals of darting swooping creatures, demons that flew in close to fasten their lamprey moors upon those gunships they could catch. Many were sent spinning from the skies by the thumping heavy bolters of Thunderhawks or the sub-zero beams of Hellfrost cannons. Those that reached their targets gnawed through hull and wing, with the incandescent energies roiling from their gullets. More and more of the horrible creatures arced in, each shoal pouring out from a distant opening in the Silver Tower. For those space wolves engaging the thousand suns on the hard-packed snow below, it seemed the gunship assault disappeared from sight in a cloud of fanged sky sharks. There was no way the craft could fire upon the creatures swarming around them without risking hitting the ships of their battle brothers. The attack was all but over before it had begun. Up ahead, sleek black shapes dived near vertical from the storm. For a moment, they seemed like giant ravens sent by the Emperor himself. Then they opened fire, assault cannon rounds and streaking missiles, reaping a heavy toll from the demons swooping in towards the fray. Dark angels by their iconography, unbidden and unheralded, but welcome nonetheless. Something strange was in their midst, a craft with an underslung cannon that glowed eerily in the white hurricane around it. With a jet fighter on each wing, it flew in close to the Space Wolves' gunship, struggling to remain airborne under the weight of the demonic attack. The craft's glowing rift cannon flared, and a dozen demons were banished back to the warp in the blink of an eye. The cannon flared again, and the gunships suddenly found themselves free of their attackers. Their slow and lethal descent reversed into a tooth-rattling climb as the cliff-like sides of the Silver Tower loomed through the blizzard. Howling in battle rage, the sky claws of Lord Bloodhow's company slammed open the doors of their gunship transports and threw themselves into turbine-powered leaps. In a matter of moments, they had gained the Citadel's rocky sides. Even those craft, fatally stricken by the demon's attack, came in as close as they were able, their passengers' jump packs closing the gap. 
Sven himself led the attack, crunching onto a near-vertical escarpment and burying his axe, Frostclaw, in the rock for purchase, before kicking himself over an ornate battlement with a cry of triumph. They were met by creatures from a madman's nightmare. Sven and his vanguard had been anticipating a fierce counterattack, but from traitor legionaries, methodical and cold. The coring war horde of Zangors that poured out over the Silver Tower's flanks was anything but. A riot of avian mutants charged in, so many of the fell things attacking at once that the volley of auto-pistol shots and storm of slashing chainswords saw several of Bloodhowl's Wolfguard bowled over the ramparts before they could land a single blow. Behind the bestial garrison came Agzept of the Sektai, a tall, armoured figure borne aloft on a spinning disc. The invisible bolts of force that hurtled from the Telekine's fingers turned Skyclaws to pulp wherever they struck home. As Sven himself pushed forwards, axe and chainsword cutting through the beastmen in devastating sweeps, the space wolves began to make ground. A thunderhawk roared from the storm, guns spitting death. Its hull was not the cold blue-grey of Fenris, but the deep green of the Dark Angels chapter. Moments later, a strike force of robed space marines slammed into the flanks of the milling Zangor attack, turning a close-fought press into a massacre. In seconds, the flagstones of the Silver Tower were slick with blood, potent Adeptus Astartes Vitae, mingling with the unclean fluids of the Citadel's Zangor denizens. Chanting in a deep monotone, the disc-riding Lord Accept brought his staff around in a slow, horizontal sweep. A tremendous, invisible force pushed against the attacking space marines and defending beastmen alike. Sven gritted his teeth and leaned hard, his jump pack long-bound, howling in protest. But it was no use. He was hurled from the battlements along with his vanguard. The Zangors sent flailing from the ramparts alongside them until only the sorcerer remained. His bestial minions fell, their bodies breaking on the rocky fringe of the Silver Tower or plummeting down onto the hard ice below. Sven's fire howlers were not so easily slain. They steadied their downward flight with blasts from their jump packs, several catching the Dark Angels that would otherwise have died upon the rocky ice and hurling them into nearby snowdrifts to break their fall. The Space Marines landed on the Arctic landscape with the loss of only a few Battle Brothers, but the impetus of their assault was spent. Already Akzep's silver tower was passing overhead. Yet, the battle was far from over. The howls of Sven's battle brothers could be heard in the middle distance, and the figures coalescing in the blizzard ahead had the unmistakable silhouettes of the Rubriquet, most cursed and indomitable of the Space Wall's foes. No sooner had the shouts of alarm gone up, the nose closest to the Thousand Suns were punched off their feet by a volley of fire. To be struck by a bolt round is to feel a tremendous impact, immediately followed by a flesh-tearing explosion. The thrice-blessed battle plate of the Adeptus Astartes can save the target from a spectacularly gory death, but against the ensorcelled projectiles of the Thousand Suns, even power armour is little use. The headstrong sky claws at the front of the attack were hit squarely by bolts burning with such intense flame their ceramite, along with the flesh and bone behind, simply melted away. 
One, then three, then nine space marines fell back into the snow, blood steaming in great measure from their corpses. Their treacherous killers strode forwards without changing pace, as unhurried as if they were systematically killing vermin rather than slaying their ancient foes. Those fire howlers still standing triggered their jump packs and hurtled forward, the storm's gale-force winds behind them lending extra speed. They smashed into the rubricade with battering ram force, the impact enough to knock down a fortress gate. Many of the thousand suns were hurled to the ground, though to Sven's warriors it was as though they had impacted with adamantium statues. Those chaos space marines that were spared the brunt of that initial thunderous impact took not one step back, nor did they so much as flinch. Bolt pistols barked and several of the eldritch dust golems toppled backwards, but it was not enough. Then the blazing volleys began once more, and the fire howler's attack was broken for good. Sven Bloodhowl fought with every iota of strength he had left. There was no way he would fall to these emotionless traitors on his own favoured hunting grounds. His chainsword firefang swung and stabbed, gnawing and sparking, but against the baroque armour of his foes it caused little true harm. His double-headed power axe sang a different tune. Where its energised blade struck home, it cleaved, gaping rents with glowing red edges in the battle-plate of the rubriquet. There was nothing inside those ceramite husks, however, but swirls of ochre dust that were swiftly tugged away and devoured by the storm. Lord Bloodhowl growled at the sight, his gorge rising at the thought of these unnatural creatures walking free upon Fenris. There were more of them coming through the storm, more in fact than the great company could hope to defeat. Perhaps the Death Wolves had failed, and the Scions of Magnus had ambushed them in turn. Sven gave a long cry of frustration and anger, smashing another traitor into the snow. He would be damned if he joined the Allfather now, so soon after the battles on Svelgard. He was determined to exact as great a toll as possible before his saga reached its bloody conclusion. For the moment, it seemed as if the storm howled in answer. Jürgen Calderison, known as the Scorch Pelt, ever since his flamer's backwash reshaped one side of his head, still counted fire amongst his allies. But the leaping energies that were killing his pack were not true fire, and they could not be tamed. A driving storm engulfed the base of the Rockshire Glacier, its fury that of the World Wolf roused to anger. Within it hunted the great company of Sven Bloodhow. Each warrior fought with bolt, blade, tooth and claw against the chaos-worshipping scum that had dared to invade Fenris. Jürgen's pack had struck right at the heart of the warband that had emerged from the storm, hoping to isolate and destroy their leaders. Nearby, Aleph the bear roared loudly as one of Magnus's sorcerers landed a blow with a gauntlet swathed in blue fire. The space wolf burst into flame, shrinking swiftly until he was no larger than a man's thumb. The sorcerer ground Aleph beneath his heel before pointing his staff straight at Jürgen. It pains me to do this, Wolf, called out the traitor. I spoke to absolve your kind at the Council of Embers. Liar, shouted Jürgen. The sons of Rust do not listen to the words of cowards. The Fenrisian ducked and ran in a crouch, avoiding the serpentine bolt of energy that shot from his adversary's weapon. He fired a spear of flaming Promethean in return. 
The sorcerer contemptuously waved the killing fire aside with a pass of his open palm. There are greater wars than ours, continued the sorcerer. The perspective of eons has relegated you to an inconvenience. Rubrique formed up around the spellcaster, and the din of battle seemed to slacken a little. Another sorcerer's bolt sizzled in. This time, Jürgen had to dive to the ice, skidding to an ungainly halt in a snowbank. He realised with a heart-pounding lurch that he was the last of his pack alive. A creeping suspicion needled at his soul that the fire howlers had finally met their match. Something huge passed overhead. Jürgen flinched, fearing a silvered citadel, then grinned fiercely as he saw the underbelly of a thunderhawk. He saw the gunship bank around, its metallic jaws open. A regal figure was framed in its moor. The newcomer, too, had a staff, glowing blue as the runes along its length channeled the elemental power of Fenris itself. The Stormcaller had come. Chain lightning shot down from above, smashing the sorcerer into the pack ice, even as he summoned another fireball. Electricity leapt from foe to foe like a hungry beast in search of meat. One by one, the rubriquet fell, inert and lifeless. The storm roared, intensifying as Njal's command of the blizzard forced the enemy slowly backward. Jürgen felt the urge to burn and slay as the beast in his soul reared once more, but saved his Promethean. There was no way his flames could survive with the Master of the Tempest so close. Though the Stormcaller's intervention had undoubtedly saved Jürgen's life, he could see the azure armour of dozens more, thousand suns emerging from the white haze of the storm. So be it, he thought, drawing his combat knife. He would fight as a lone wolf, avenging his pack in glory before the end. The blizzard's howl rose in pitch, sounding to Jürgen like the baying of a hundred packs. The voices of Morkai's spectral kin, perhaps, welcoming him to the afterlife of the damned. Then realisation hit, and he turned around. Lord Harold Deathwolf was riding hard down the face of the Rockshire Glacier, his features set in a grimace of concentration. Behind him came his proud and bestial kin. Not only his Wolfguard atop their massive lupine mounts, but also dozens of sprinting wolven and hundreds of ice wolves, long-bodied and athletic. In their wake was a stampede of white-haired mastodon and frost rhinoids, a juggernaut force of nature more lethal than any avalanche. The glacier's face shook as the mountain beasts thundered pall-mall towards the battle below. The thousand suns were pinned in place, fighting to stay upright against the stormcaller's tempest. Jürgen saw scores of charging beasts sprint past him as the deaf wolves' charge connected with the force of an avalanche. Here and there, a lance of crackling magic or volley of inferno bolts smashed a Thunderwolf rider from his saddle, mutative energies causing haywire. But for all their fearless resolve, the invaders were hard-pressed against the fury of the charge. As the deaf wolves charged in, powered blades swung to slash away arms, still firing bolters. Heavily muscled thunderwolves sank their teeth into the necks of traitor legionnaires, and wolven tore away limbs and helms with sheer brute strength. Behind the first wave came native lupines, the sinuous beasts burying sorcerers in flurries of tooth and claw. Pack after pack vanished in explosions of pink fire, as the sorcerers levelled their blistering counter-attack. But there was still more to come. 
The rest ran past them to rip beastmen thralls limb from limb. Those of the Thousand Sons that were downed but still alive had barely begun to regain their feet before the bestial stampede hit home. Power armour that had survived millennia was cracked and split open by the sheer crushing weight of the Fenrisian herds. Nial's tempest did the rest, cruel fingers of cold driving into the compromised armour to snatch the glittering dust from inside and cast it to the winds. Jürgen felt harsh laughter bubble up from his gut as the storm began to abate. The Thousand Sons' attack was crushed and cast aside, the pack ice littered with bloodless corpses and scattered sections of power armour. Then his mirth died on his lips, a cloud casting shadow over his head. On the far horizon, the silver tower they had sought to stop was glowing like a second sun. To poison a death world. The silver towers, despite the counter-attack of the space wolves, had proven subtle enough to evade detection, and where they were discovered, mighty enough to prevail against those that sought to stop them. Now the gigantic citadels hovered over powerful geomantic sites, each siphoning the inherent power of Fenris for an even darker agenda. On the third day, after the silver towers descended, the skies roiled above Fenris. The lambent lines of the Fenrica Borealis, twisted from green to orange to violet pink against the deep blue of the evening sky, looking more like writhing serpents than the lapping waves they usually resembled. Those tribesmen who looked too long upon them found strange thoughts and waking dreams invading their consciousness. Some were driven irrevocably insane by the sky sigils they saw there, and took blades to those around them, seeing their friends, brothers, and even themselves as monsters that must be slain if the sun was to rise another day. These cursed heavens were the backdrop against which the sorcerers of Zench wrought their work. Within the Silver Towers, blood rituals were taking place. Within each inner sanctum, a captive space wolf bound tight in silver chain was lowered into a cauldron of boiling gore. This was not strictly necessary for the etheric summons the exalted sorcerers were performing, but the howls of outrage and despair were pleasing to their masters nonetheless. For nine hours, nine minutes, and nine seconds, the rituals continued. A nexus of energy hung between silver towers, a point of potential so destructive that reality thinned and bled pure magic around it. The skies swirled crimson as giant mouths howled the praise of the architect of fate. Ravens and crows turned to blazing skeletons, Forests screamed in pain. The silver towers glowed bright as stars, forming the ancient prosperine symbol for vengeance when viewed from low orbit. Magnus the Red burst into being above the snows, and the fate of Fenris changed forever. The Crimson King did not arrive with dignity and poise in the manner of an Eldar prince, nor did he announce his coming with heralds and servant squires, as would an imperial potentate. Instead, he barged into the harsh air of Fenris like a charging minotaur. His horns ripped the 
glitch in reality wide open as he forced his titanic bulk through. A glut of demonic celebrants spilled from the lesion behind him. The Crimson King roared his orders into the massed vassals below, who were already gathering alongside the warp-spawned host that tumbled from the rift. Around him, a blast wave of cerulean force cracked outwards, turning the snow to a landscape of crystal sand. The facets of every grain reflected an aspect of the demon Primarch's soul. With three great beats of his pinions, Magnus soared aloft, revelling in his own power. The cold and virginal air he breathed in was exhaled as coloured clouds of sentient mist that wound away like ghosts seeking mortal victims to asphyxiate at their leisure. The Primarch cast about himself, drinking in the harsh beauty of the Fenrisian wilderness with relish. Soon it would be his to corrupt, his to remake in a form more pleasing to Zench. With a nod of satisfaction, Magnus resolved to begin his true work. The last time he had walked the winterlands of Fenris, he had sought to crush his foes utterly, his intent to shatter the fortress monastery of the Space Wolves before extinguishing the great companies one by one. This time, his intent was far stranger and more unsettling. He had transcended simple vengeance, and in doing so, left behind the notion of a purely physical victory. This time, Magnus would corrupt Fenris as part of a far greater plan. Fenris was classified as a death world primarily because of its ferocious megafauna and the killing cold that typified its hell winter when the planet was furthest from the wolf's eye, the system's sun. Few realise that the opposite extreme, those times when Fenris's elliptical orbit brought it closest to its star, was just as lethal, known to many of its peoples as flame height. In this season of strife, the icy crust of Fenris would melt, floods and storms breaking the greater landmasses into islands of floater, tempestuous sea. The warrior peoples of that world, set adrift upon what holdings they could secure, warred amongst themselves for the natural resources that were left. All the while, they were preyed upon not only by the giant wolves, bears and ice trolls of that realm, but also by the monsters that surged up from the depths, desperate to feed on the plentiful shoals that boomed during flame height. The one realm that remained whole amongst the tempests of ice and fire was Asaheim, a continent-sized plateau jutting from the landscape near the northernmost point of Fenris. Asaheim was seen by the tribes as the land of the gods, and not without reason. There the Space Wolves made their home, descending only to draw new blood into their ranks or to test themselves against the deadliest creatures they could find. Millennia slid past, horrific storms lashing the flanks of Asaheim with every passing year, but still it stood tall, the Fang proud upon it. The Fenrisians were strong of limb and iron of will, they had to be in order to hew a life from the harsh landscape, and therefore so were the Space Wolves created from their stock. It was the natural strength of Fenris and its people which Magnus sought to corrupt. Asaheim's plateau was shot through with root-like tunnels that reached down to the fiery undercurrents glowing beneath the planet's crust. 
A near-infinite source of geothermic power that allowed a power base as colossal as the Fang to persist. There was a network of deep chasms and crevasses upon Asaheim's sprawl that led directly to that lair, known to the sons of Ras as the World Wolf's Gullet. That secret world fire, the hidden heart of Femris, was the focus of Magnus's plan, but it was the work of Araman, most gifted of all the Thousand Sons, that would help him secure it. No mortal man has more power over the arcane than Araman, arch-sorcerer of the Thousand Sons, long ago. His story was one of compassion and heroism, for the Psyker Lord has willingly ventured along the most dangerous of paths for the betterment of his kin. Since those early days, he has spent ten long millennia searching for influence enough to control his fate, and that of his brothers. In that time, he has lost his way spectacularly. Now Araman walks the path of avarice and destruction, though he would rather die than admit it even to himself. The pursuit of knowledge is, in essence, a noble goal. One who understands the universe can theoretically change it for the good of all. Some knowledge, however, brings only strife. When Araman saw the gene curse of his fellow thousand sons manifest at the dawn of the Great Crusade, he vowed to find a way to halt its rampage. When he witnessed his twin brother mutate into a mewling abomination, the vow to save his brethren became the divining core of Araman's being. The chief librarian of the Thousand Sons Legion turned every waking moment to finding a solution to the flesh change. Ultimately, his single-minded crusade led to a kind of success, but also a terrible failure. The rubric of Araman, the ritual he and his fellow sorcerers used to ensure their brothers would no longer mutate, turned all but the most powerful of their number to unliving dust. The rubriquet were born free of mutation, but cursed as soulless automatons forever. Ever since, casting that darkest and most powerful of spells, Araman has roamed the galaxy in search of eldritch power enough to make good his mistake. His hope is that he can somehow reverse the rubric, turning his fellows back into beings of flesh, blood, and limitless mental potential. So long as he sought that goal, he will go to any lengths to further it. For the last few decades, he has been embroiled in a quest to locate and plunder the fabled Black Library of the Eldar, where the sum total of that ancient race's learnings about the forces of chaos are sealed away. In the last few years, Araman's crusade has met with a measure of success. By fighting through its Eldar protectors, Araman was able to get near enough to the Black Library that he could project his astral form inside it avoiding its strange guardians long enough to transcribe the fabled Tome Labyrinthus onto hermetic parchment of his own making. With this priceless manuscript at his command, Araman can navigate long-lost sections of the webway, that labyrinth dimension that lies between reality and the warp. Many of the portals he can now reopen are situated on worlds settled by the Imperium, and amongst these are ancient Kern gateways, that lead onto the death world of Fenris. With this knowledge, Araman has made himself vital to Magnus's plans once more, and vice versa. With Magnus the Red in Araman's debt, 
the arch-sorcerer would likely be able to invade the Black Library in earnest in search of the ancient cure he desires. Anaman brought more to Magnus's cause than just exceptional generalship and raw eldritch power. Though it had taken him almost a hundred years, he had gathered those surviving sorcerers banished from Magnus's side at the time of the dread rubric. Many a bargain, threat, and bribe was made in this great endeavour, and Araman had to sacrifice much in order to achieve it. But ultimately, the mission was a success. The exiles were assembled. Amongst them, Arathrat, the mind-eater, Hakor Thriceborn, Magistar Nezchad Aratos, and Blind Omahotek. Each one commanded his own legion of thralls. Backlit by a storm of pink lightning, the arch-sorcerer arrived from the sealed webway portal he forced open atop the highest peak of Runeheim. Behind him came a vast army of rubriquet, sorcerers, and baying mutants. In summoning his fellow exiles and their thrall bands to war, Araman all but doubled the martial strength of the Crimson King. The demon Primarch descended from bleeding skies to meet Araman in person upon Runeheim Peak, and the arch-sorcerer bowed, ever so slightly, before discussing the plan for Fenris's downfall. Whilst the psycho hosts of the Exiles took battle to the Imperial forces abroad in Fenris's open wilderness, Magnus and Araman would work their agenda on a different level. The ritual halls at the centre of each silver tower were lit by the candlelight of helical tallow pillars, each made from the rendered-down flesh of a different, psychically active Xenos race. Complex hermetic symbols ran around concentric circles that contained nine-pointed stars, golden ratios, and scarab sigils perfected by Tiskar's finest minds. At the heart of each circular hall was a symbol-ringed hole that plunged down to show the landscape of the geomantic nexus below. Into these halls stepped Magnus, Araman and their most powerful acolytes, performing their rite of corruption and then magically translocating to another tower to enact the same ritual over and over again. Columns of dark power flowed from the underside of each silver tower, channeled into the ley-line sites of Fenris. A great howling of wolves filled the night, but with the space wolves and their allies fighting to repel wave after wave of invaders, None could spare might enough to assail the towers, now glowing ominously in the skies. Though the Tower of the Crystal Raven was blasted into scattering shards when it strayed too close to the fang, its fellow silver towers worked their magics all but unhindered. The Tiscan Spire's corrupting beam plunged deep into the grumbling caldera of the Fire Breather, that same volcano that Sven Bloodhow's great company had adopted as their symbol. The ground shook and shivered like the flanks of a sick hound. Magma seeped up from the cracking crust of ice. But where the natural molten rock of that sacred site glowed orange, yellow and white, the lifeblood of the volcano bubbled up as a virulent pink. A sense of terrible pressure built in the air until every mortal creature within a dozen miles felt blood trickle from its ears. Then, with a titanic boom, the volcano erupted. The pyroclastic cloud rushed outwards, blasting the coniferous forests on the volcano's slopes to splinters. 
A sea of boiling ectoplasm blasted upwards from the fire breather in a great column that sent liquid warp fire surging down its flanks. Rivers of polluted magma turned snowdrifts to cackling steam wraiths and moss-covered rocks to distorted skulls. As the bow wave of the fire breather's eruption shot outwards, men and beasts alike were turned to statues of sparkling ash, but the Tiscan spire remained unmoved. To the east, the fissures south of the Rockshire Glacier glowed blue with the baleful energies poured into them by the Tower of the Sectae, floating high above. The unhealthy light pouring from the site became blinding as the fissures turned to crystal, and demons of all shapes and sizes began to emerge from within, spilling out from the cracks like ants pouring from an underground nest. The warp spawn ran, swooped, scampered and cartwheeled in all directions, falling upon the tribesmen that had gathered to watch the event in awe. Many of the Fembrisians escaped. Some even fought their way free of the insanity that rushed to claim them. Thousands more were left to die in snow turned pink by rivulets of spilt blood. At the gates of Morkai, strange jackal spirits rose from the caverns thought to lead to the Fenrisian underworld. The malefic ghosts hunted down the living to possess them and send them axe first against their kin. The Heavensburg broke from the ice that locked it to the land and went questing for living things to crush. Water spuming and tidal waves around it as a trillion eyes opened across its surface. The lights in the firmament, once seen as omens of good fortune, wound together into a flaming sky serpent that shed warp light on the carnage below as its jaws yawned wide then seemed to close around the orb of Midgardia. Under the planet's crust, the rivers of magma flickered and pulsed, brimstone horrors dancing above them like devils at a dark feast. Across the entirety of Fenris, the primeval cold of Hellwinter relinquished its grip, melted away by the raging fires that fought under the planet's crust. A false flame height had arrived, not caused naturally by the planet's orbit, but by the work of a demon king. Its fires were not the pure and cleansing kiss of the wolf-eyed star, but the cursed flame of Zench, change in its rawest form. Within a matter of days, the ice-locked islands that froze together to form Fenris's crust were breaking up, the ripping and groaning of tectonic land masses echoing through the air as if the planet itself was in pain. Perhaps it was, for logic had little hold upon Fenris anymore. Here and there, the denizens of the inky depths surged up to lash at the armies, clashing on the shores of each dwindling landmass, crushing dozens of warriors with ridged and rubbery tentacles the width of a Jarl's longboat. Howling packs of wolves fell upon the foot soldiers of the Thousand Suns, the light of panic and desperation in their eyes. Even the ice trolls of the Forsaken Peaks slouched from their lairs to assail the demon hordes with claw and club, their brutish minds dimly aware that these strange invaders threaten their home. The Femrisian tribes, bellicose and fierce, fought hardest of all, and in several places stood shoulder to shoulder with the Sky Warriors from their fireside legends. 
The entire planet had been plunged into war, each sacred site the epicentre of a raging conflict. Only one nexus of potency remained uncontested. The Fang dominated the skyline of Asaheim, as stalwart and indomitable as ever. But the Crimson King had plans for that legendary fortress too. The Cursed Warriors of Fenris. Though the Space Wolves fought hard against the traitors, and though many a saga was cut short every day, it was the native people of Fenris that paid the highest price. They were coming face to face with that which was inimical to order and sanity. The raw stuff of the warp given form and set against them. With the skies racked by the psychic byproduct of the ongoing invasion, there was little to tell day from night. The white wastes were lit every hour by coruscating pinks and blues. The wolf's eye, sweltering and huge over the course of a true flame height, shed a sickly light. It gave little more illumination than Valdemani. Underneath these celestial bodies, the sons of Ras fought with everything they had to defy the Chaos Invaders. Great packs prowled the wastes, their hunter skills more vital than ever before as they brought battle to demon and traitor alike. Too many found their glorious charges dashed to pieces against the unyielding walls of Ceramite and dust ranged against them. Lone Wolves, each the last of his kin, sought glorious deaths against the most powerful foes as a testament to their fallen brothers. Most died in fire, consumed by the mutative energies of the volleys sent against them. Packs of lupine beasts, great and small, slunk and stalked, instinctively hunting trespassing warbands before tearing into them with sudden ferocity. Again and again the wolf packs were left as steaming corpses strewn across the ice by the fire of emotionless rubriquet. With Logan Grimnar still missing, there was little organisation to bind the space wolves and their kin into a cogent force with which to repel the mage-shrouded silver towers. The defenders of the death world were reaping a significant toll, but their enemies were invariably one step ahead. There were those born of Fenris, yet not taken into the ranks of the Sky Warriors, who somehow overcame the demon interlopers that hurled fire and damnation into their midst. Whether by fieldcraft, stealth or might of arms, they had wrestled victory against the odds, but they were forever changed. Veteran Huskals walked back to their kin with axes held loosely and a blank stare in their eyes. Glory-hungry youths were ravaged horribly by what they saw. Shield maidens slunk as stooped as crones to sleepless beds. These were the lucky ones, for they were at least sound in body, if not in mind. So profound and powerful were the energies of change that roiled across the planet that those mortals touched directly by Zench's fires underwent terrible transformations. Gangling mutations erupted from bronzed and weather-beaten flesh. Eyes bulged from armpits and backs, and crests of feathers and quells ran down shaven scalps and shoulders. Some lost their cohesion of form altogether, reshaped into horrible spawn things that defied description and damaged the sanity of all who witnessed their transformation. Those born under the unnatural skies were monstrous, even those who seemed clean of limb when given the birth axe. Not only grasped the weapon, as was only right and favoured, but used it to hack away at their shocked parents' hands. 
Who knows how many young Fenrisian warriors who appeared whole and sound would grow with a hidden seed of change planted inside them that would one day bear shocking fruit. The Fenrisian tribes had been cursed. It was a calculated and deliberate bane sent upon them by Magnus the Red, for his legion had been riddled by the flesh change long ago. In part, that was the very reason they had sought to master the arts that saw them persecuted. The rampant mutation did not go unnoticed by the agents of the Ordo Hereticus still monitoring the Fenris system for traces of chaos taint. In the darkness of secret Sycana sanctums, astropathic missives were sent screaming out across the void. Under the strange light of haunted skies, the sons of Ras defended their home, each warrior fighting tooth and claw against an endless stream of foes. A sense of doom hung heavy in the air, though few spoke it openly. All knew the chapter's law well enough to realise who was visiting such mayhem on their world. The great Cyclops was amongst them, or was close at hand. It was the only explanation. The lords of the Fang wondered if the wolf time was upon them, and if so, whether Lehman Russ himself would step from the lost annals of history to lead them to victory. The fury of the wolf lords increased with every passing day. Each warrior king took his great company into the wilderness, speeding across the snows in sanctified transports to engage the treacherous and the monstrous wherever they were found. Though they hunted within their own territory, they were ambushed by thunderous volleys from Rubrique that burst from icy waterfalls, emerged from snowdrifts, or stalked from poisonous seas. The sea wolves took a fleet of gunships across the boiling seas, heavy bolters hammering death into the corrupted cyclopods that hurled their bulk onto the ice flows in search of human meat. Enger Krakendoom himself fought blade to talon with a flame-skinned sea hydra, cutting off one boulder-sized head after another with his power spear, Longhaft, before delivering the death blow with his bladed storm shield. In doing so, he saved the Ice Whaler tribe from slaughter, but committed his men to a tempestuous battle upon tilting ice flows, locked in combat against demons that clambered from the monster's corpse. Eric Morkai's famed scout packs reported a spate of apparitions near the gates of Morkai. The great company investigated in force, and it was well they did. The wispy jackal spirits that emanated from the great crack in Morkazian's rocky flanks were flying through the mountain passes to fall upon the bone-clad tribes of the caves, and in some cases possessing them entirely. Eric gave his warriors the order to fire upon those who seemed demon-tainted. Though it weighed heavily upon them to do so, his grim-faced warriors complied. Their decision was soon justified. From each fallen tribesman a pair of blue horrors burst forth, grumbling that their fun had been spoiled and falling upon the space wolf scouts in a flurry of clutching limbs. The scouts overcame the revolting things with combat knife and bolt pistol, but not before several had been left as burnt and bleeding corpses. Ragnar Blackmane had returned to the Fang after banishing the Changeling, for he knew that to become embroiled in the exhaustive interrogations of the Dark Angel's debrief was to waste valuable time. His great company's journey from the Fang to the field of battle was typically bombastic. The Black Manes hurtled through the skies in gunship squadrons, the shriek of their descent and the scars they left across the skies announcing their presence to all. 
From the crystal fissures of Rockshire, blinding blue beams of psychic energy shot heavenwards to smash a pair of gunships from the skies. The warriors within plummeted to an early grave, and such was the cost of war. The rest of the gunships landed without loss. One after another, the gunships skidded hard into the tops of the fjord-like Rockshire fissures, cannons booming. Their impact was the pounding of fists upon a glass-like sculpture of fractal complexity. Cliff faces turned to faceted quartz by the magics of Zench's crystal labyrinth, shattered and sloughed away. Cries of anger and despair rose from a thousand demon throats as they toppled into the frothing sea below. The exclamations turned to shouts of pain as the black manes debarked from their craft amongst the thunder of bulk weapons. It was on those cliffs that the young king fought through the magical barrage of the gangle-limbed Lord of Change, Excahanrak, taking off the greater demon's eyeless head with a soaring blow from his kraken-toothed blade, Frostfang. No victory was celebrated that day, however, for the headstrong blood claws that pursued the reeling demon hordes into the cliff's strange caves disappeared entirely. Trapped in endless glacial mazes on the fringe of reality, they were never seen again. The warriors of Hjal Grimblood, who some said were obsessed with flame, fought not to burn but to preserve the ancient hardwoods of Oshverwild, so long harnessed by the indigenous tribes for the creation of stout longboats, were already afire with strange and ghastly energies when the grim bloods descended from the skies. They had gone in search of the agents of Zench and found them aplenty. The entire forest was infested with flame-fisted demons that moved in strange hovering leaps, and creatures hurling warp flame at the steel-bark trees that twisted them into the likeness of men burning at the stake. Putting aside their flamers and stifling their need to plunge into battle, the grim bloods divided into two great packs. One made haste for the river of ice-cold water that ran alongside the forest every flame height. By felling enough trees to create a rough dam, that first great pack caused the river to break its banks, though the resultant flood could not extinguish warp fire. It drove the dull-witted demons back into the guns of the second force. Caught between the two jaws of Grim Blood's trap, the flame things were annihilated. It was in that forest that Grim Blood saw something in the flames, some fragment of insight that spoke of an imminent doom to come. In his mind's eye, he saw a river of wickedness, red hot and aflame with hatred, rising to drown the fang from within. It disturbed him so greatly, he summoned his old ally, the rune priest Svengtha, Ashbeard to his side and confided in him. He did so well out of earshot, for the rumours that Jarl Grimblood could see the future in the fire were not ones he wanted to propagate. The rune priest nodded sagely, for his own divinitions had led him to much the same conclusion. The Crimson King's invasion needed two things above all. To keep the Space Wolves on the back foot, reacting to his attacks as they occurred, and to keep them convinced that the true peril of his resurgence was already upon them. To this end, he put into motion a dread scheme that would strike right at the heart of Russ's realm. Room priest Ashbeard knelt amongst the embers of the Oshver Wild, hands planted squarely on the ground as he mentally reached out to his brethren within the fang. There was no answer. 
for the air itself was tinged with the disruptive energies of chaos. There was something deeply wrong with the world spirit of Fenris. The planet's essence was wounded, and that wound was in danger of being infected by the energies of the warp. All Ashbeard could see in his mind's eye was a cyclopean visage staring imperiously down at him. He broke off the connection with a shudder. If his brothers were there in the mindscape, he usually prowled with ease. He could not find them. Calling his chooser of the slain, Vire, to his side, Ashbeard set in motion a different plan. He spoke to the cybernetic Corvid in low tones of the vision Lord Grimblood had seen, and bade her reach the fang as fast as she could. Off she flew, her long black pinions beating hard. Reaching out with his staff, the room priest harnessed a portion of the winds, raging high above, and set the hurricane at her back, speeding her on her way. If Gyal's predictions were true, news of great import went with her. Perhaps the gambit was seen by Magnus, for as the raven Vire flew hard over the Rans Peninsula, a swarm of sky shark demons came swooping after her. Faster she flew, but the demons soared on the etheric winds, and their sheer malevolent hunger lent them speed. The foremost demon surged forwards, the baleful energies crackling at its moor so close they turned Vire's tail feathers to scattering ash. Grimblood's message, borne on fragile wings so high in the firmament, was seconds from being silenced. Sudden thunder boomed as lightning blazed through the clouds. Six of the demons were lit by blinding white light before disappearing altogether. The same instant, a storm of explosive bolts hammering out of the gloom to detonate amongst the rest of the demonic pack. Hurtling down from the clouds came the Thunderhawk Iron Spear, its four doors agape like the moor of some metallic wine. With a roar of turbines, the gunship shot forward to draw Vryer into its cavernous hold, saving her from the shoal of screamers just as they were closing in. The demons cried loud in frustration as the Thunderhawk boosted away. Ashbeard's cyber-familiar would bring its message to the Fang, and in doing so, alert its guardians to the disaster that threatened to tear out the fortress monastery's heart. In the depths of the Firebreaver, Magnus and his coven of exalted sorcerers chanted baleful incantations above a lake of boiling lava. That same molten rock, already dancing with warp geists after the silver tower's beam had struck home, bubbled with foul energies. A mortal man would have died in seconds amongst the sulfurous furore of the volcano's depths, but Magnus was no man, and his vassal sorcerers were long beyond concerns of the flesh. With the primal power of the volcano at their fingertips, the Cabal worked a great rite that summoned their demonic allies into the lava itself. Eyes, mouths and grasping claws bulged and bubbled through the molten rock until the fiery lake was utterly infested. Magnus had chosen the foremost practitioners of the Pyrie tradition to aid him in his work, and now it was their turn to join the army in the Lake of Fire. One by one, the tall helm sorcerers turned from creatures of flesh, bone and ceramite to beings of living flame. Their glowing forms slid into the lava as if it was no more than clear water, disappearing under the surface without a ripple. Magnus gave a half-smile of satisfaction before letting his mighty pinions snap out to their fullest extent. Soaring aloft on brimstone-scented thermals, he shot from the volcano 
and winged towards the jagged peaks of the horizon. The molten army of demons and pyromancers slid through the planet's fiery mantle with the ease of sharks borne along deep-sea currents. Even when effectively blind, they could feel the fang's direction within the mystical ley lines that crossed Fenris, for its indomitable spirit was such that it had a psychic presence of its own. Closer they swam, bearing down on the geothermic energy farms that powered that vast fortress from below. Their intent was to attack the Space Wolves' inner sanctums from within and destroy their genitoriums, plunging them into darkness and silencing their guns so their brethren could close in. They had chosen a vector of attack so strange that even the room priests would not look to guard against it. It was a plan worthy of a demon Primarch, and as the molten army bubbled up through the magma culverts of the Fang, it looked as if it would have an unprecedented success. Yet as the Fenrisians say, sometimes the meekest warrior can stand against the mightiest giant. Born safely to the Fang's sky shield docks and the gullet of Iron Spear, Vraya the Cyber Raven had already flown through the corridors of that ancient fortress with Grim Blood's message at the forefront of her mind. She reached the Iron Priests of the lower levels mere hours before the magma armies took shape once more in the lowest dungeons of the Space Wolves stronghold. Clacking and squawking in binaric cant, the Cyber Raven spoke of the river of flame that Grimblood had seen rising up to drown the fang. It was enough for the Iron Priests to consult Crom, Dragon Gaze, Castellan of the Fang, and to monitor the subterranean levels. There they found energy spikes that lent credence to the Raven's message. It was enough. Since the first clash upon Fenrisian soil, the Iron Priests had begun the process of awakening and girding for war the Dreadnoughts in the base of the Fang. Their original intent had been to send the adamantium-hulled walkers to battle against the invaders abroad in the ice wastes. Now upon Krom's command, they made haste to send their mighty charges against the enemy within. The Fang's dungeons have long been home to those secrets the Space Wars have chosen to keep hidden from the wider Imperium. The fortress monastery is of such immense size that only the Iron Priests know the full extent of its reaches. Its tunnels are said to be more numerous than the hairs on a troll's back, and they spread for miles through the plateau of Asaheim. The great companies, a fraction of the strength they once amassed during the time of their heresy, barely fill the upper tenth of the fang when they gather in chapter strength. Though this gives the Space Wolves an extensive lair in which to practice their customs and preserve the culture of their race, it also made defending every acre of the fang next to impossible. Up through the vents and culverts of the iron vaults came a bubbling tide of magma. An unnatural stink pervaded the lower levels of those torch-lit halls, the overpowering scent of charred flesh mingling with an acrid chemical tang. The temperature in those lonely depths, usually far below the point of freezing, started to rise to a prickly, itchy heat. Change was coming to a part of Fenris that had remained fundamentally the same for several millennia. The first creatures to crackle up from the rivers of molten warp stuff were brimstone horrors. These tiny flame beasts spat gobbets of fiery liquid upon the sacred sigils. The space wolves of 
Russ's reign had carved into the walls to ward off Maleficarum, the influence of chaos. The runes seemed to flare, and the nearest brimstone horrors were snuffed out as if by pinching fingers. The others danced away with shrieks of alarm to find easier things to burn. Next to rise from the liquid fire were the strange, curve-bodied creatures known as flamers. They hurled warp fire from rope-muscled limbs, belching out conflagrations that melted away rock and runic sigil alike. Soon the walls of the vault were running with liquid fire, twisted faces and writhing anatomies appearing in the flames before taking shape as demons in their own right. Into this tableau rose Zarax Throtep, lead pyromancer of the Tiscan host and a trio of his fellow pyromancers. Their fire forms coalesced from the magma. First horned helms, then broad shoulders, then robes of cascading flame emerged from the molten rock. Soon enough, a coven hovered shimmering above a river of molten rock that now flowed like a serpent through the corridors of the fang. The Tiscan fire lords shared an unspoken communion as ever more demons rose from the flowing river of fire, then set off to the south, warp flame trailing in their wake. The mission that Magnus had given his fire shapers was to cause as much destruction within the depths of the fang as possible. This they did gladly, partly to avenge the hundreds of his warriors that had died assailing the fortress monastery in M32, and partially to draw attention from their Primarch's true works. The flaming host grew ever more numerous as more and more of the corrupted magma bubbled and spilled into the corridors, each glut of Molten rock bearing with it a clutch of diminutive horrors or flame-fisted demon beasts. Their mission was to find the geothermic reactors that lent the fang most of its power and overload them. Should they be successful, the explosive carnage they sowed through the guts of the fang would destabilise and weaken it from within. Better yet, with the energies crippled, it would plunge many of the fang's defences into darkness. With the fortress monastery's guns temporarily silenced, the Silver Towers and Magnus himself would close upon the Fang with impunity. To secure such a critical advantage would turn Magnus's ascendance into unassailable domination. On towards the halls of the dead they went, those crypt-like chambers where the heroes of the space walls were revered and paid respect. When the exalted demon Ember Spite a giant flamer, swollen with the power of change, manifested in reality. The ancient tapestries and woodwork scenes adorning the walls burst into conflagrations of multicoloured flame. The sagas they depicted took new shape. To show long-dead space wolves at the mercy of those tyrants and monsters they had, in reality, killed in glory. Through the lower levels of the Fang's dungeons, the howls of gargoyle servitors rang out. Crom Dragon Gaze, having resumed his duties as Prime Castellan for the Fang after returning from the shattered fortress of Valdramani, was quick to take up his axe. He made haste to join the defenders of the lower levels. Meanwhile, the Iron Priests, warned against the trespass by Grimblood and the Raven Vriar, gritted their Fang teeth and redoubled their efforts to bring to bear as many Dreadnoughts as possible. Two of their number were sent to the hidden lairs of the Wolven. 
There was an army of Fenrisians down in the depths, and if they could but harness it, the intrusion could be stopped. Amongst the Iron Priests walked Lord Bran Redmore, his deep war howl calling the lost and the dreaming to wakefulness. With his helm at his side, the Wolf Lord could smell the distant tang of warpfire. Its violet stink grew stronger by the minute. Bran could feel his gorge rise as his senses rebelled. The beast within his soul, straining to be set free in glorious slaughter, but he kept his command steady and strong. There were those in the dungeons of the Fang that, had he not done so, would have pounced upon him, and perhaps even ripped him apart. One after another, the vaults in the darkness were open. Lord Redmore's seal of authority, enough to cause even the room-locked doors of the deepest jails to hiss open. Behind him, bestial shadows slunk upon the walls. Howls of bloodlust rang through the tunnels of the Fang as Bran led his secret army towards the vile scent of demonic invasion. In a parallel tunnel, far larger and adorned from floor to ceiling in runic script, the Iron Priests led a strike force of their own. Dust shuck from the arched roof as the heavy tread of the colossi they had awoken reverberated through the bedrock. With them came Crom Dragongaze. Though he had ordered his wolf guard to direct the defence of the Fang in his absence, he still commanded a formidable strike force of Drake Slayers. The two parallel passageways emerged in the cavern of the Fell-Handed, a vast and buttressed hall. Soon enough, Dragongaze and Redmoor lucked upon the Iron Priests and their dreadnought host. Valdrak Shieldsmith led the procession of walkers, nodding to the Wolf Lords as the two armies converged into one. Though he knew it must have been a trick of the light, Shieldsmith could have sworn he saw a faint smile upon Bran's weather-beaten features. Across the other side of the vast cavern, a river of corrupted magma boiled and churned towards them, Demons with shifting shapes danced and bounded above it, their cackling voices mingling with the crackling bursts of the flames. The flood of molten rock and its fiendish riders flowed out into the cavern like a delta to the sea. Its passage guided and shaped by the pyromancers at its fore into a series of spear-like thrusts. Ranged against the warp flame host was a battle line of dreadnoughts, Indomitable in body and undaunted in will. Three score and more stood against the demon invasion. That mighty assemblage anchored around the legendary beyond the fell-handed himself. As the last of the pyromancers entered the cavern, the ancient hero gave a battle cry so loud it echoed like a thunderclap. The wolven were the first to charge, as ever. For a time, it was as if the fall of Tiska had been revisited. Flames leapt all around. The muscular figures loped and bounded into battle against the tall helm sorcerers of Magnus. Some of the Wolven were the self-same warriors from the legendary great company of Jorin Bloodfang, lost in the timeless tides of the warp for ten millennia. They had been rediscovered by the great companies, saved from the Sea of Stars and reintroduced to the chapter, only to be matched against the same warrior mystics they had pursued into the Eye of Terror so long ago. This time, Zarax and his fellow pyromancers were ready for them. With sweeping gestures of their staffs, they sent waves of horrors and screamers into battle. 
Though each demon was torn to shreds, hacked to bits or pulverised by the raging wolven, the gibbering warp spawn took their toll, incinerating ages-old heroes and stabbing long-bladed knives into unprotected faces. The sorcerers, brought time by their minions, turned entire packs of wolven to scatterers of ash with their incantations. Yet the wolven's attack had itself brought time, and their own allies were close behind. As one, the Space Wolves' dreadnoughts opened fire. A hail of assault cannon shells crashed home, las cannon beams lancing through it like lightning through a storm. The closest of the pyromancers, Avantu Thotek, waved his staff in a serpentine gesture, and an incoming salvo of metal projectiles was melted by the intensity of the warp flame's strange heat. They splashed home as little more than quicksilver beads. The first volley of las cannon beams shot overhead, missing the demon host completely, but striking the chains that held the cavern's seal gate in place. An immense guillotine blade of adamantium came slamming down, cutting off the invaders already inside from those flame demons coming through the tunnels to reinforce them. Many of the dancing fire demons that capered within the cavern misread the situation and cackled in triumph, thinking their space wolves' prey sealed in and at their mercy. Then the dreadnoughts' hell-frost cannons opened fire in unison, and the deadly truth became clear. The leading edge of the magma river was blasted backward like a wave crest caught in a gale. Fire became ice as the molten stone formed into a freezing wall. It curled around Zarak's frotep as an immense and many-fingered hand of igneous rock. For a second, the sorcerer was pinned in place. A pinprick of light glowed from within the wall for a second. Then the entire edifice burst into a scattering cloud of skeletal phonexes that shrieked outwards in all directions. Where they reached the edge of the cavern, the avian demon thing set fire to the dank rock of its walls, in the process sending a wall of smoke billowing out to obscure the Tiscan host from the guns of the foe. Emboldened, the fire demon surged forwards once more. Zarek's throatep hurled bolts of coruscating flame so fierce they melted through even the adamantium hulls of the dreadnoughts to incinerate the half-dead warriors inside. A wall of warp fire surged across the cavern floor once more. This time it was Bjorn that stood in its path, his ground-shaking stride pounding into a slow but unstoppable charge. He hit the wall of flame without slowing. The runes of majesty and preservation upon his hull flared the icy blue of a winter sky as they fought the Maleficarum that threatened to consume him. Out from the wall of psychic fire he came, swathed in serpents of red-hot rock and glowing head to toe with incandescent energies. For a moment the rune priests feared the giant warrior had gone to his final death, but the fell-handed bore the blessings of Russ himself, he had even faced Magnus and lived. The streams of flame converging upon Bjorn grew brighter as the pyromancers channeled ever more energy into him. One by one, his ice runes burned out, and though a dozen dreadnoughts were charging in his wake, their aid would come too late. Bjorn's hull began to melt, steam wraiths cackling wherever the fire serpents constricted to send rivulets of adamantium hissing to the flagstones. Then came the howling. Hundreds of wolven, recovered from the four corners of the galaxy after their long exile, charged in close. 
Amongst them were loping, long-limbed were-creatures, sprinting from a side passage in the gloom, yellow eyes glinting in the firelight as they came to the aid of Bjorn. Some were rangy and thin, others massive and barrel-chested, giants with lupine heads that wielded great ceremonial spears. They gathered around their lord, Bran Redmore, and their rampaging dreadnought known only as Murderfang. The feral machine's destructive wrath spurred them to ever-escalating feats of violence. A hundred different fusions of wolf, tribesmen and space marine leapt and bounded over the spreading delta of magma, teeth bared and saliva drizzling from snarling mouths. Even a Fenrisian predator beast would have balked at crossing the magical flame, but the were-things that called the dungeons their home truly knew no fear. Scores upon scores were burned, transformed and reduced to ruin. But the rest came on in a tide of tooth and claw. They fell upon the flame demons, as if starving for their meat, ripping away the strange spongy flesh of the demons in great fiery gobbets, even as the magma burned their limbs away to glittering embers. Two of the pyromancers were borne down, slain as much by raw fury as by any strength of limb, whilst the others blasted the wolf creatures to ash. Then the first wave of dreadnoughts hit home, powered gauntlet claws snapping, and it was the demon host's turn to die, a crushing, stamping wall of adamantium and fury. The army of the entombed heroes barged their way through walls of mutative flame and knots of demonic horrors alike, until all that was left in their wake were puddles of burning ectoplasm. The battle, in the depths of the fang, raged fiercer with every passing second, but Zarak's Frotep was nowhere to be seen. In the reactor chambers beyond the cavern, fires leapt and danced as if given malicious life. The Return of a Legend The Iron Wolves have ever been respectful to the machine spirits that serve them, and the Iron Priests attending the Teleportarium knew their craft well. In a crackling dome of cerulean energy, Egil passed successfully into the stony heart of Midgardia. A macro-class teleport homer clutched in his clawed gauntlets. After a long but desperate search in the darkness, he found Logan Grimnar and his Kingsguard digging their way, meter by painstaking meter, from the cavern of the Tetrarchs. Egil knelt before them, presenting the teleport homer as a knight presents a sword to his liege. Within the hour... The teleportation ritual was complete, and Lord Ironwolf and the High King stood upon the bridge of the All-Father's Honour. Their stony expressions were lit from below by the fires of Midgardia's demise. The High King of Fenris had come through utter disaster, but through the ingenuity of Eagle Ironwolf, he had been saved from the brink, and was now where he belonged, at the forefront of the war effort. Within the strategium of his flagship, Lord Grimnar surveyed the parchments and data slates that had reached them from the four corners of the Fenris system. Around him were ranged not only his champions, but also Lord Ironwolf, the remnants of his pack, and the Grey Knights of Grand Master Valdor Arukun, who had teleported onto the bridge when the news of Midgardia's lingering demon taint had reached them. Grimnar's stern features 
purpled by extensive bruising, set into a thunderous scowl. No ship Thane, or Com's vassal, dared approach within reach of his immense crimson axe. A hollow screen dominated the cylindrical strategium hall, the amber light glowing from its vastness playing across the weather-beaten features of the great wolf. He had one eye half-closed, his face turned away. It was failure writ in the most graphic fashion imaginable. Failure to predict, failure to protect, and failure to wrest victory from an enemy lower than dirt. The sight seared his soul to the core. Sprawled across the strategium screen was the stricken planet of Midgardia. Its surface was little more than a worldwide inferno, the colours of intense heat playing across it in swirling waves that looked almost fluid from orbit. Igil Ironwolf had recounted to Lord Grimnar the details of the planet's fate. Its corruption had been deemed so total that the Imperial fleet amassed by Supreme Grand Master Azrael had delivered the ultimate sanction. The planet had been hit by barrage after barrage of missiles and lance strikes. The first Salvo's warheads were laced with a potent biotoxin that reduced all living matter, corrupted or not, to a sickening black mulch, and in doing so filled the planet's atmosphere with combustible gases. The second Salvo was comprised of fire-sword missiles. These had detonated with such blazing force the very air of the planet had ignited from sea to sea. The searing inferno that had followed was fierce enough to melt rock. It turned every living creature to ash, reduced proud bastions to slouching mounds of molten metal, and banished the demons of Nurgle, along with their plagues, back to the warp. Grimnar took in every new piece of information in solemn silence. His great maned head shaking as the gravity of the loss settled in. Midgardia was once home to billions of souls, born survivors one and all. Their refusal to abandon their homeworld, despite its lethal fungus jungles and sulfurous tunnels full of natural hazards, spoke to the Fenrisian mindset. Rugged and tenacious, every year the Midgardians had raised regiments of grizzled Astra Militarum that the Space Wolves had counted as reliable and like-minded allies. Their loss was a grievous blow to the Fenris system and the Imperium as a whole. Grimnar was a ruler of great wisdom, and he knew that a planet as riddled with chaos taint as Midgardia had only one fate left to it, galling, as it was to admit. The Dark Angels were right to have purged the planet in order to prevent the nightmare of the demon from spreading further, and yet they had left the deed unfinished. The decision was made. The Space Wolves' high command would mastermind a pinpoint strike on the Grand Genitorium, a deep abyssal tunnel that siphoned energy from Midgardia's core. By opening the ancient gates that sealed it closed, they would pave the way for a killing thrust powerful enough to end the planet forever. With the authority of not only a Grey Knight Grand Master, but also a chapter master of Logan Grimnar's stature behind them, the mission commanders found it easy enough to requisition a dozen Thunderhawk gunships from the Imperial fleet. That mighty warplane was perhaps the only craft in the Imperium that could brave a firestorm like the one consuming Migardia. 
that the gunship's hull, laced with ceramide plating, was proof against even the most incandescent heat. Near vertically they dived through low orbit to reach the thick layers of smoke that shrouded the planet, then plunged into the flames raging below. Within the hour an elite force of space wolves shot across the planet's surface, the hulls of their insertion craft glowing cherry red with the energies burning around them. They flew straight as an arrow towards the concentric walls of the Grand Genitorium, for here speed was the best armour of all. On approach, Eagle Ironwolf's personal Thunderhawk, the Grey Claw, let loose a howl of binaric cant so loud it was audible even over the roar of the Inferno, precisely modulated to cow the machine spirits of the Genitorium's utmost gate. The dome-like structure opened like a flower, and amongst the plumes of trailing flame, the Thunderhawks dived within. Inside was a scene of nightmarish potency. Masses of refugees had clearly swarmed into the macro-structure's interior in search of a safe haven, but they had been locked out by those who had sought shelter beforehand. They were right to have done so. Whatever plague the populace had brought with them had run rife, turning men to monstrosities of fungus, demon flesh and scorched meat that had been pressure-cooked by the incendiary heat outside. The morass twitched and groaned at the approach of the Thunderhawks. The silvered gunship of Valdar Arakun opened fire, coming in low to disgorge its passengers. Even before they had disembarked, the Grey Knights blazed clear a landing zone with bolter, blade and purifying flame. Egil's craft was not far behind. It emitted another howl, and the vault lock in the ground irised to open. The Space Wolves split off from the Grey Knights and went inside within moments, their Thunderhawks arrowing down through the vast copper coils of the Genitorium's throat. Time was against them, for in opening the vault lock, they had undone the Underworld's main defence against the Cataclysm without. But the Space Wolves have always excelled on the hunt. Scant minutes had passed before Grimnar's packs, having debarked from their Thunderhawks at a run, had located a cavernous antechamber filled with desperate half-starved Midgardians. The sight of Grimnar himself was greeted with rapturous emotion. The eldest of the natives asked in reverent tones if a saga-born hero of legend, the right hand of the Emperor himself, had come to save them. The Great Wolf had little time for shows of subservience. In clear tones, he brooked no argument. He mustered as many Midgardians as he could into the half-empty holds of his gunships. Eagle Ironwolf, his Iron Priest's hard work on the Genitorium's Castellan Matrix, triggered the cogitator imperatives that would open the rest of the colossal structure's abyssal pit before voxing the Grey Knights fighting on the upper levels. The deed was done. It was time to withdraw and put Midgardia to the sword once and for all. The Thunderhawk gunships of Logan's expedition roared from the mouth of the Grand Genitorium as if spat skywards by the planet itself. Lent speed by the roaring thermals, they hurtled into the skies, the heat of the planet's crust slowly replaced by the blessed cold of the heavens. Within a matter of hours, they had rejoined the Space Wolves' fleet. Sighting their craft's aggravated machine spirits as the cause, the Fenrisian gunships debarked their passengers in a private docking bay, far away from the eyes of the Grey Knights. Recovering upon the bridge of the Allfather's Honour, Logan Grimnar met with Grandmaster Arakun once more. 
The Grey Knight refused Grimnar's offer of a warrior's handshake, but such was the profundity of the events about to transpire that no more was said. The full deed would not wait forever. With a heavy heart, the chapter master of the Space Wolves gave the order for Morkai's tooth to be aligned with the open throat of the Grand Genitorium. Runic sigils were reflected in the sweat of Grimnar's brow, reflecting their countdown as the vast weapon was made ready for indentured chain gangs in the honor's guts. This far inside the gravity well of the wolf's eye, a warp jump was extremely dangerous, and the great wolf had a feeling it would lead to certain death if they tried. Timing was critical if they were to ride out the shock wave of the coming blast. The entire battle barge, so large you could house a dozen companies and still have room to spare, shuddered as the colossal missile was launched. Perhaps some fell intelligence realised the Space Wolves' intent. For their strategium's giant hololift screen showed a swarm of bloated fly things pouring up from the depths of that dark vault. Their numbers were such they darkened the skies, but it was too little, too late. Morkai's tooth, its nose cone, aflame with destructive energies that burned an unforgiving path towards the yearning pit beneath, plunged into the Grand Genitorium's open gullet. For a moment, it disappeared from view. Then all was bright light. Midgardia's death blasted fire into the void. Those looking upon the planet's demise directly were blinded forever by the intensity of the explosion. The planets nearby were riven by destructive energies. Tidal waves, firestorms and volcanic eruptions marked the end of entire geological eras. Fenris was buffeted by ever-expanding bow waves of force. Night turned to day by the intensity of the planet-killing blast. Midgardia had died in fire and violence, and the Imperium had been scarred forever by its loss. Forewarned of the brutal exterminatus event by Grimnar's priests, most of the Imperial fleet was able to ride out the colossal shockwave. The same could not be said of the silver towers that hung like suspended blades over the worlds they had come to end. As the outward edge of Midgardia's death reached them, the citadels glowed brighter and brighter before winking out of existence entirely, though it seemed too soon to rejoice after the death of one of humanity's worlds. Many an Imperial commander smiled in mingled satisfaction and relief to see the impossible fortresses banished back to the Imperium. For years to come, the whole system was subject to searing meteor storms, these carved across the skies to crater the landscapes of all the worlds that had once gazed up at Midgardia in the night sky. It was said that the impact site of these space-born rocks was cursed, and that those who investigated them soon succumbed to a deathly wasting. Before long, the meteor showers were seen as coals from Morkai's dark fires, hurled from the underworld to set the fires of doom across the realms of men. No joy could be found in the heart of Logan Grimnar when the news of the Zenshin fleet's disappearance reached his ears. The Fenris sector was largely free of the Silver Tower's curse, but a planet under his guardianship had been slain by his hand. Emotions blazed in his chest as fierce as the fireball that now marred the heavens. But instead of dwindling, they grew hotter with each passing minute. The Cyclops was behind this. An old enemy of the sons of Ras, and a cunning one. 
He knew it as surely as if he could hear the monster's laughter ringing in his ears. To his dismay, his suspicions were confirmed when a missive psalm reached the honour's strategium. A crimson giant walked Fenris, leaving destruction in his wake. Giving the order for all a head full, Grimnar made for the engine decks, a trio of iron priests following him. The great wolf's determination to fight in person for his home world was so strident, so close to the edge of unreasoning rage, that every man and servitor in the All-Father's honour redoubled their efforts to make as much haste as humanly possible. The orbit of Midgardia had taken it relatively close to the death world that once protected it, and Logan's fleet reached its destination with impressive speed. No sooner had the Iron Priest sanctified their orbit then the invasion alarms rang out. Every space marine aboard the Honor scrambled for a teleportorium, hangar, or drop bay. The revenge of the Great Wolf was close at hand. The works of Magnus. The Crimson King found the demise of Midgardia to be endlessly entertaining. A fitting reward for those who venerated the hypocrite sons of Russ. Deep within his spiteful soul, there was still a part of the demon Primarch that found the idea of bringing about Exterminatus a horrifying concept on some level, though he was well used to quashing such feelings. His actions had caused billions of innocent souls to die in agony, something that the Primarch would once have carried as a mark of shame to his grave. The greater part of the demon Primarch's being, however, found little more than a swell of satisfaction. The next stage of his plan was complete. Long ago, whilst forging alliances and moving the pieces of his long-laid grand plan into place, Magnus had made a pact with his brother in darkness, Mortarian. Mortarian was the Primarch of the Death Guard, Lord of the feculent hell-world Barbarus, and favoured of the Plague God. He had dared refer to himself as the Crimson King's equal, and even spoke against him in a former life. Magnus had not forgotten that slight, but for his great work to succeed, he needed allies. A bargain had been struck, deep within the Eye of Terror. A cadaverous Mortarian had agreed to send one of his choicest entropic diseases, and an endless legion to carry it, in order to hasten the conquest of the Femris system. In return, Magnus had sworn that Mortarian could claim any planet under the wolf's eye and the name of Nurgle, any other than Fenris itself, for that already bore the mark of Zench upon it. The fungal reaches of Midgardia were a natural choice. With a few pandemics sown through its jungles, the planet would make a pleasing annex to Nurgle's garden. By the time Morkai's tooth had been launched towards Midgardia, the planet was all but consumed by the vileness of Nurgle's realm. But the prize had been snatched away from the plague god's clutches at the last, detonated spectacularly in an act of cosmic sacrifice. But that was not Magnus's fault, of course. Whether Mortarian and his agents could hold on to their new territory was their own lookout. Such devil's bargains have always been meat and drink to Magnus's master, the architect of fate. This twist in events was especially welcome, because it discomforted Zench's eternal rival, the Lord of Plagues. So the great game had ever been played. Compared to the true aftermath of Midgardia's spectacular demise, 
The damage wrought to Nurgle's annex was all but irrelevant. The death of a world was an event of terrible psychic magnitude, for the swan song of several billion souls is sweet music indeed to one empowered by strife. When that fell deed was in essence a gross betrayal, the deliberate act of the protector slaying those he had sworn to protect, the psychic energy was all the more potent. Should a practitioner of the eldritch arts harness that tempest of emotion, capturing the shockwave of energy that explodes through the warp, he would have power enough to change the galaxy. Magnus the Red had ensured he would do just that. Not by accident had the Crimson King sent his exalted sorcerers into the cold depths of space. The silver towers that blighted the Fenris system from end to end arranged into a complex metaphysical pattern that echoed that of Magnus's celestial orrery, were ready and waiting when Mingardia met its end. As the physical blast of the Space Wolves' planet-shattering exterminators roared towards them, the Silver Towers had harnessed the tidal wave of psychic energy that came before it. Brighter and brighter, they had shone until the physical dimension could hold them no longer. At the apex of their psychic harvest, they winked out of existence and returned to orbit the sorcerous orb they called home. The commanders of the Imperial fleet that defended the Fenris sector had rejoiced at their enemy's disappearance, little realising that Magnus's plans had not suffered a retreat, but ensured a major advance along the vengeful path he had chosen. Magnus's desire to visit the pain of betrayal and wrongful execution upon the Space Wolves was not born entirely of spite, nor some twisted sense of poetic justice. Even an apprentice mage knows that like affects like, and there is power in the echoes of form indeed. Possessing the likeness of a victim makes the spell easier to achieve. And to include a part of the target in the ritual, a fingernail, hair or treasured item, increases its connective potency ninefold. Such petty curses were beneath one such as Magnus. His concern was not to use an echo of a single adversary's physical form, but of cataclysmic events that had resonated throughout history. One in particular, in fact, the burning of Prospero. The mutative curse of the Wolven had been seeded deep. The lupine flesh change, so cunning in its delivery, it was welcomed and spread by the very warriors it would soon lay low. Even now the Space Wolves were being changed by proximity to their feral brethren, proud and handsome warriors devolving into atavistic caricatures as the most bestial aspects of their natures were made manifest. It was a calculated affliction, and one that had caused the intolerance and suspicion of the Imperium to turn upon the warriors of Fenris with vengeance. By having the Changeling play so expertly upon the rivalry between the Dark Angels and the Space Wolves, Magnus had shown the sons of Russ what it was like to be persecuted for their genetic deviance. More than that, it had given them a taste of what it was like to have their sovereign domain bombarded by those they had once called brothers. The works of the Cyclops did not stop there. In bringing fire and damnation to Fenris, Magnus had given his adversaries a taste of his own people's fate. The gene stock of the Space Wolves was tainted by mutation and madness, and monstrous tentacled fiends hunted those still hale and strong. 
In turning one brotherhood of space marines against the strongholds of another, he had ensured the flames of the Horus heresy roared back into horrible life. More specifically, by manipulating the space wolves into destroying a world populated by their former allies, Magnus had echoed the execution of his own planet, and expertly harnessed the psychic backlash of billions of dying souls in the process. In terms of metaphysical ritual, it was the single most powerful arcane gambit to have been attempted since the ignition of the Astronomicon, with the destruction of Midgardia harnessed by the Silver Towers. It had been an unqualified success. All was in readiness for the final act. The blue scribes groveled and whimpered, tiny in stature next to the towering colossus they served. They talked over one another in their frantic need to please as they shoveled forward scrolls, grimoires and illuminated manuscripts. It is all here then, said Magnus. You did as I commanded. Yes, O Lord of Fates arising, said Pertrax. All sorceries of man's devising. The angel's hoard was quite surprising. Forgiveness, our lateness, if you please, said Zerpep, genuflecting dramatically. To carry such a load plays havoc with the knees. Magnus passed his great glaive over the assembled arcana. Relic by relic, the horde turned to strangely scented mist. The miasma wreathed him in a shielding aura of pale light. Inspired to shield against the arcane, said Pertrex. Not all mankind is so mundane. Silence, said Magnus, lest I hurl you into the well of eternity. <laughs> shouted Zertep and Petrax as one grabbing each other in fear. Magnus grimaced and opened a fist. The eye in his palm stared, and the demons turned to motes of blue light. Back to your toils, scribes, said Magnus. It is time to end this. The sons of Fenris. The claws of Ras scarred the skies once more as wave after wave of drop pods thundered down to earth. This time they came not to conquer, but to reclaim. Logan Grimnar was first to the fray, his wrath a howl upon the wind. Pack after pack of Wolfguard drove the charge home into the treacherous legion that trespassed upon their world. Waves of insertion craft shot from the skies, making haste to the magma-flooded coastline that the Wolf Lords were calling Burning Lake. There was the greatest concentration of thousand suns, and hence there was the target for the great wolves' raging vengeance. The traitors were making a massed advance upon the wolf's gullet, a grand chasm said to lead to the heart of Fenris itself. The fang had been rendered silent, for though the pyromancer invasion that boiled through its dungeons had been repelled at the last, their war fires had still done serious damage to the reactors in the lower levels. The armoured companies of Eagle Ironwolf and the headstrong warriors of Sven Bloodhowl were coming in fast. Even Grandmaster Arakun's Grey Knights were inbound after being alerted to the demonic presence gathering near the Fang. The champions of Fenris were closest to the site, more than ready for retribution. Grimnar knew not what the Thousand Sons intended. His suspicions were that ritual magic would be involved, but in truth it mattered little. 
The presence of Chaos worshippers gathered in force upon Asaheim was enough for the kill strike. The vanguard of the Space Wolves' attack was driven into the body of the enemy like a broad-bladed spear, swathed in a blizzard of ash and embers conjured by his rune priests. Grimnar led the charge upon his chariot, Stormrider. Many an eldritch bolt was turned aside by that ancient relic's force field. Editor's note. I hate that chariot. I hate it. I disappeared from Warhammer for like a couple of years and I came back and all of a sudden Logan Grimnar's Father Christmas in his bloody sleigh. Jesus Christ. Anyway, back to the story. Too many others sent grey armoured warriors toppling from their saddles before the charge hit home. Their battle plate melted away and their flesh mutating. But it was a price inescapable if the space wolves were to reach the deadly cut and thrust of the melee. Grimnar's way was to strike swiftly and without mercy. Thunderwolf riders kept the pace whilst grizzled Wolfguard and howling packs of Wolven debarked from speeding Stormfang gunships to charge forwards in their wake. Flashes of blue and gold armour span through the firestorm as the Thousand Suns were dismembered, decapitated and stamped into the slush, slicked ice. Many of the golem-like warriors got back up, ripping and tearing with curled fingers where their bolters were damaged beyond repair. And for a moment, it seemed as if Logan's charge had stalled. Then came the fire howlers, and the deadlock was broken wide open. The initial push had seen the Thousand Suns turn at bay, as Grimnar had known it would. They had little choice, for he had deliberately trapped them upon the shores of Burning Lake. The sorcerers in command of the Automaton army had spread their warriors out, taking the force of Grimnar's charge into their midst whilst moving around the flank. In doing so, they had turned their backs to the west and invited Sven Bloodhowl to strike home at full strength. It was as sound a trap as any wolf pack had executed, but against foes as strange as the Thousand Suns, it was not enough. The sorcerers, amidst the traitors, encountered a ritual that blasted the air around them, the heat geists they conjured, flocking outwards to brush against every one of their minions. Grimnar growled loud as they fell back onto the burning lake itself, walking upon the lava as if it was solid ground. The space wolves slashing their way through the enemy ranks came up short upon the flaming shores, firing their bolt pistols as the Thousand Suns stepped backwards to walk upon the Sea of Flames. The volleys of return fire were punishing in the extreme. It was becoming obvious that it was not the Space Wolves who were closing the jaws of a trap, but their adversaries. Hero after Fenrisian Hero was flung back into the midst of his battle brothers, chest agape or headless neck spurting gouts of blood. Grimnar's champions died alongside Sven's fire howlers, their sagas cut short by an enemy that laughed at the laws of nature and reason. It was not the way of the Space Wolves to yield in the face of adversity. Though they realised they were outmatched in a firefight with the Thousand Suns, they crouched down, turning their shoulders into the fusillade and returned fire as best they could. All knew that Grimnar's blood was boiling, but he was no fool and had chosen his warriors well. The Fire Howlers have long had a fascination with fire. During their feasts, they eat, breathe and walk on flame, for they believe a true warrior proves his mastery over that which burns. Named for the Fire Breaver Volcano, they have long incorporated lava into their rituals and they fear it not. Grinning fiercely, Sven Bloodhowl sent forth squadrons of anti-grav land speeders that ploughed furrows in the Lake of Fire as they sent hissing melter beams at the foe. 
Even the ensorcelled rubricade melted away like tallow in the face of such fearsome weaponry. As the Thousand Suns tracked these airborne packs with their bolters and rotary cannons, Sven and his wolfguard led a jump-pack strike against the Thousand Suns nearest the Lava Lake shoreline. Together with their remaining sky claws, they hurtled over the crackling sea of molten rock to slam into the rubrique, and then leapt backwards in a blast of turbines to reach the shore once more. Those of the Thousand Suns that toppled were not burned by the lava, for their master's sorceries had inured them to its killing heat, but they sank nonetheless, vanishing from sight with no more than a few glopping bubbles to mark their demise. The exalted sorcerers commanding the army of automatons soared above the fray, borne aloft on blade-edged discs of zench, and negotiated the fiery thermals as if they were cool zephyrs. One sorcerer hurled crackling bolts of pink energy that blasted one land speeder after another to scrap metal. Another threw helixes of warp light that caused their victims to simply wink out of existence. A third threw gobbets of corrosive blood at the space walls on the shoreline, each splash of crimson eating away at exposed flesh like concentrated vitriol. Every volley sent their way was swiftly dissipated by a glimmering shield of force. The space wolves' death toll was rising with every passing second. So large was the Thousand Suns' army amassed on the shore that not all of them had reached their muster point over the Lake of Lava. A thick knot of space wolves was hacking its way into the midst of a Thousand Suns' strong point when Logan Grimnar saw something that snatched his breath from his lungs. A giant amongst men, clad in slate grey and gold, his blonde mane flowing in the hot breeze. His sword sang as he killed and killed, explosions of azure energy erupting around him with every thrust and sweep. For a moment, the apparition met Grimnar's gaze. This is your world, my son. Use its bite. Then the vision was gone. Part of Grimnar's soul sang, nonetheless. It was Lehman Russ he had seen. He was sure of it, and he knew what to do. With a long, piercing howl, the High King of Fenris cut a path to the north. A bubbling, churning sea of lava stood before Grimnar and the heart of the wolf's gullet, where the focus of an eons-long vendetta threatened to conquer his world completely. Even should he somehow cross the deadly lake of fire, the warriors ranged against the great wolf and his champions were possessed of immortal power and would not yield easily. Glogan Grimnar fought like a force of nature. Braided air and wolf-skin mantle were caught in the spark-strewn winds as he drove over fords into his hated enemies. The Axe of Morkai, a trophy taken from a slain World Eater's champion, rose and fell. For once its blood-hungry blade did not hiss and bubble with vital fluids, but instead was swathed by a filigree of lightning and dust, the sole remnants of the cursed rubrique he left dismembered in his wake. Then the great wolf's chariot slew to a halt, icy mush spraying from the great paws of the beasts at its fore. Stormrider had reached the edge of the lava sea, and with the rest of the Thousand Suns walking atop its molten crest as if it were solid ground, Grimnar and his champions of Fenris had simply run out of foes to kill. Grimnar ground his teeth, loath to turn back. Circumventing the lava sea would take the best part of a day, and that was time he did not have. 
The Great Wolf was driven by a desperate sense of urgency. He had seen the Primarch in the flesh, fighting alongside his sons. What more proof did he need that the wolf time was upon them? Magnus fouled Asaheim with his presence already. He could taste the fiend's eldritch stink upon the wind, even though he could not see him. Fenris was all but in the Crimson King's thrall. If the Sons of Rus were to turn the planet's might against him, it had to be done soon. Then came the answer to Grimnar's summons. Coming in low through the smoke came three entire squadrons of Stormfang gunships, their turbines roaring loud. Land speeders flew escort duty around them, assault cannons sending bullets that sprayed lava as they tracked into a gun line of thousand suns. Within a matter of seconds, a half dozen rubricae were cut down, but their companions did not so much as flinch. Calmly, they turned and tracked the Space Wolves' aircraft as they strafed Soul Reaper cannons, tearing the land speeders out of the sky in explosions of mangled metal. The Terminator armored traitors upon the lava sea sent missiles striking out to detonate hard upon the prow of each of the mighty vessels. In places, the stricken gunships peeled off, lest the force of their own momentum tear them apart. The others held true to their course, so low to the pack ice that Grimnar reflexively ducked as they shot overhead. The Great Wolf smiled as the gunships fired, not upon the sorcerers and their army of mindless thousand suns, but upon the sea of lava itself. Their hell-frost cannons, weapons unique to Fenris that could freeze every cell in a target's body, and scoured the molten lava over and over. In a matter of seconds, a long tongue of cooling rock extended half a mile into the Lake of Fire. Grimnar was already hurtling along the impromptu causeway, his wolf guard and their wolven wards close at his heels. The Thousand Sons reacted slowly, too slowly. With a howl of triumph, Grimnar was amongst them once more, his great axe ending the cursed existence of the ancient traitors one after another. The champions of Fenris ran hard in his wake, their Terminator armour proof even against the infernal ammunition of their lifeless foes. Arjak Rockfist led the charge, slamming his anvil shield into the nearest rubric marine with such force the automaton came apart in a clatter of armour plates. The Thunderhawk Iron Spear followed close behind the Stormfang gunships, heavy bolters booming as they sought the sorcerous masters of the enemy force. A bolt-spitting Stormfang was pulled from the sky as it swept past the Thousand Suns, Telekine Accept, the Ingrate, the gunship ploughing into the magma in a spray of molten rock. The Telekine waved a mocking finger, his laughter chilling upon the wind. A moment too late, the Iron Spear blasted the sorcerer to atoms with a stabbing beam from its turbo laser. But the revenge kill was enough to cause the Magistar's fellow psychers to focus on their own defence rather than pressing the attack. The Thunderhawk's claws were savage, but it was that which it held in its metallic guts that posed the greatest threat. The Great Wolf had commanded his rune priests to attend him, despite the likelihood of meeting a demon Primarch head-on, and Magnus the Red at that. In a psychic confrontation, they would likely die to a man within a matter of heartbeats. They had come to his call, nonetheless. It was well that they did. 
Though Grimnar's charge had seen him drive a deadly assault into the Thousand Suns' army and lay low several of the sorcerers that focused its animus, it was supported only by land speeders, gunships and speculative fire from distant longfangs. With gathering pace, the Thousand Suns converged upon the still cooling causeway, its rock plinking and cracking as the warring temperatures of fire and ice threatened to break it apart. A trio of disc-riding sorcerers, their altitude putting them out of reach of Grimnar's bold thrust, realised the great wolf sought to fight past their bulwark to the shores beyond. As one, they raised their staffs towards a storm-fang squadron, carving overhead for another attack run. Vast pinions appeared in the sky as a winged serpent, even larger than a legendary Fenrisian rock, and took form. It darted forwards like a striking cobra, ripping the storm fangs from the air one after another and crushing them in explosions of blue fire. The rune priests inside the Thunderhawk were not found wanting. On approach to Grimnar's location, they had begun a summoning of their own, and the belly of the iron spear was strewn with pelts, bones, and bloodied runes. With a terrible, ear-shattering roar, a vast lupine head reared out of the burning sea. A fiery mane cascaded from a colossal skull of molten rock. Jaws, drizzling ropes of darkening magma as mountainous haunches pushed a tidal wave of lava across the endless ranks of Thousand Suns. The Fire Breather, mythical totem of Sven Bloodhow's great company, had emerged from its volcanic lair. Jaws lined with jagged stalactites crunched down on the winged serpent conjured by the Thousand Suns, dissipating it in a burst of flame. The titanic wolf thing came crashing back down into the lava beyond, tidal waves of red-hot liquid slopping over the massed ranks of Rubrica. Suddenly, Grimnar's path was clear. The last three Stormfangs, hurtling back around for another attack run, came in low to fire their Hellfrost cannons once more. This time, the tongue of cooling rock was dangerously thin. Barely three warriors abreast could negotiate it without toppling into the waves of lava, but the champions of Fenris pressed on. Foot by agonising foot, they strained and sweated and bled until the far side of the Lake of Fire was in sight. There before them stood rank upon rank of Terminators, their massive silhouettes unmistakable. They were the Scarab occult, elite bodyguard of the Crimson King. In their midst stood the distinctive figure of Araman, arch-sorcerer of the Thousand Suns. Grimnar's chosen vanguard went to war in the heaviest war gear their chapter could provide, but even Terminator armor could not save them all from the sorceries of Araman. Torfin Daggerfist went down to a coruscating blast that caught him full in the chest, his face contorted in agony. Belagor the Pale had his head torn from his neck in a spray of multicolored light. Olev Whiteblade was punched from his feet by an invisible force that plunged him into a yawning moor of fire. Those warriors behind them gritted their fangs and ran onwards past the fallen. Should the charge falter, the lack of momentum would see them all slain. Grimnar's chariot veered and bounced as it bore the High King into the fray. The old warrior's eyes met those of Araman, the legendary arch-sorcerer who had slain the packmates of Russ himself at the dawn of the Imperium. 
A wordless moment of pure hatred passed between them. But Grimnar had another fight to win. Beyond the traitor librarian, the great wolf could see a roiling miasma of energy that deadened sound as well as vision. With Magnus's lieutenant so close at hand, he could guess well enough what lay beyond. Shouting, he urged his thunder wolves into a sprint and leapt. Chariot and rider alike soared over the heads of the scarab of a cult line to plunge headlong into the strange mist. A stormfang roared past, its hell-frost cannon freezing two of the scarab occult into lifeless statues. Adaman gestured dismissively, flames leaping from the lava at his bidding. The inert terminators jerked stiffly back to life, one sending missiles from its shoulder mount to impact with the rear of the stormfang and send it crashing into the scorched rock beyond. Grimnar's champions of Fenris charged on as the arch-sorcerer reached out a long-fingered hand. Five streams of mirror-like shards flew out, striking five of Grimnar's warriors with a barely audible tinkle of glass. They had flown straight for warriors without helms, and where they struck flesh, the Terminators devolved horribly. Hair sprouted all over and noses elongated into fanged snouts as they changed rapidly. Not into wolven, but into Fenrisian wolves. Anatomies buckled and reshaped radically within armour. Yet the Terminator plate held firm. Flesh and bone yielded first. Howls became whelps, became whimpers, as bones snapped and ground, driven like osseous blades through the bodies of the transformed. The wolf things fell, rolling and spasming sidelong to meet the dubious mercy of a fiery death. Still... The champions of Fenris came on. Anaman launched another psychic assault. Fiery snakes darting like sidewinders from his eyes. This time it was Arjek Rockfist that led the charge. Two of his shield brothers on either side. They raised their heavy storm shields. A living battering ram of ceramite and muscle. Pounding forwards at a loping run. The baleful energies curdled. Turned to foul-smelling but harmless ectoplasm. Behind the shield wall was Nial Stormcaller, debarked from the Iron Spear and working hard to disperse every spell hurled their way. Arjak and his Wolfguard had the chance they needed. The Scarab Occult stitched their fire across the Space Wolves' line with clinical precision, aiming for knees and helms instead of the well-protected bodies of their foes. But the Shield Brothers were accustomed to such powerful impacts. Here and there, a warrior staggered, only to spring forward again, enraged and growling. The Wolfguard charge hit the Scarab occult line with the force of a wrecking ball. Somehow, the Sakmet kept their footing, sliding back along the ashen shore but remaining upright. The Scarab occult fought with a serpentine speed, quite unlike the dreamlike movements of the Rubrique. The automaton warriors parried hammer blows with elegant sweeps of their curved blades. Two even disarmed their opponents, whilst another sent a lightning-clawed champion sprawling with a grievous wound across his torso. When Arjak barreled into the fray, shield first, opening the Scarab Occult's line and hurling foe-hammer sidelong, the weapon struck Araman full in the side with a loud crack, sending the sorcerer skidding away in a flurry of actinic lightning. There was a flash as foe-hammer teleported back to Arjak's modified gauntlet. When it faded, Araman had disappeared. With the arch-sorcerer's augmentations banished, the Sekhmet no longer fought like demigods from Prospero's mythic past. Yet Arjak and his wolfguard were still more than evenly matched. Then the Thousand Sons 
had numbers on their side. But it was not long before the champions fought more like brawlers than warrior kings, head-butting, elbowing and lashing out wherever they could at the indomitable crimson bodyguards that had somehow fought them to a standstill. The ember storm raged around the combatants, fanning the flames in the hearts of Arjak's shield brothers to new heights. Here and there, along the lines of battle, one of the Fenrisian champions would open his foe's guard, a thunderhammer, following soon after to crush the armour to buckled ruin. Slowly, painstakingly, they pushed their enemies back, and every step they won allowed more of the wolf guard to gain the breach just as the initial stalemate of two well-matched wrestlers gives way to sudden victory. The champions of Fenris found themselves suddenly on the ascendant, barreling through the ranks of the disrupted enemy to slash and pulverise and stamp their enemies into the rocky ground. The miasma that had claimed their lord dissipated fast, revealing the spectacle beyond. The sight that greeted them ravaged the sanity of all who witnessed it. Magnus, Ascendant. At the vast chasm of the wolf gullet, the war for Fenris's heart was in full flow. With the sudden disappearance of the Silver Towers and rumours of Logan Grimnar's champions taking the fight to Asaheim, the most mobile great companies had reacted with the speed of predators on the hunt. What they found was deadlier than any had anticipated. As the champions of Fenris fought Araman's undying legions, their battle brothers converged upon the wolf's gullet. Eagle Ironwolf had pushed every one of his war machines to the limit in order to reach it at this critical hour. Attacking from the north after being redeployed by Bulk Lander, he launched his attack at the fore of a land raider spearhead. His armoured columns grinding across Asaheim's pack ice and sprays of melting snow. He did not come alone for the surviving members of the Midgardian Defence Force rode with him in the tanks of the Astra Militarum, and from the mountains of Trials in the west, Harold Deathwolf rode at the head of the largest wolf pack Fenris had ever seen. Both the Ironwolves and the Deathwolves had been embroiled in vicious and close-quarter fighting, with invaders hailing from the Silver Towers that had rained fire upon their homeworld. Their wolf lords had suspected trickery when their floating citadels had glowed dazzlingly white and then simply vanished, leaving their ground forces at the mercy of the resurgent space wolves. Their fears were soon confirmed via Vox Cascade with the Fang. The phenomenon was a false retreat, and Magnus's invaders had been sighted upon Asaheim. Before the hour was out, the great companies had broken what remained of their enemy and made all speed for the Fang. The thousand suns that had appeared upon Asaheim had marched from a shimmering portal that had spiralled out of nothingness at the mouth of the wolf's gullet. With the fang robbed of power by the battle in its dungeons, there had been little in the way to intercept the legion of automatons that had marched out. Only when serried ranks of rubriquet had fanned out to stand upon the edge of the vast chasm, their disc-riding masters scouring the snows for signs of the enemy, did the mastermind behind Fenris's plight enter the fray. Magnus the Red blazed once more into reality, surrounded by a halo of psychic energy so intense it melted the snows for a mile around. His striding upright gait radiated pride in great measure, and well it might, 
for his prize was there for the taking. The great companies, spurred to greater speed by the light illuminating the clouds around the fang from below, raced back to intercept. In doing so, they went to their deaths. The Space Wolves did not go into battle alone against the demon Primarch. From the tumultuous skies darted allies on black wings. Squadrons of Nephilim jet fighters flew as outriders for dark talons and massed land speeders. The Ravenwing, dispatched by Azrael himself, had flocked to join their rivals in this deadliest of hunts. It was the Ravenwing that first paid the price for challenging the Crimson King. A bolt of actinic light shot from the centre of the rocky circle marking Magnus's arrival upon Azaheim. A piercing lance of energy, so fierce it scarred the eyes of all who saw it. In a flash, two jet fighters were disintegrated, the third of their squadron spiralling to crash, burning into Asaheim's immense cliff face. The Dark Talons, claiming close behind them, opened fire with their rift cannons, hoping to banish Magnus back to the warp. The strange unlight of the weapons did no more than blister the demon Primarch's skin. With a snap of his wings, he sprang into the air, whipping his immense staff around to send an airborne tsunami of psychic energy crackling out. Where it struck home, the dark talons were turned to black marble, laced with seams of pilot's flesh. They arced, then plummeted, plunging one after another into the boiling morass of corrupted lava at the base of the wolf's gullet. By the time the aircraft struck the lava, Magnus had already landed deftly upon the chasm's edge, like some titanic gargoyle, his booming chant echoing across the ice fields. Those who heard the words firsthand felt an itchy agony blossom across their skin, as if they were being poisoned by serpents that had materialised within arteries and veins. The deaf wolves were the next to brave a headlong charge, but their attack did not go unsupported. The Ravenwing had jettisoned a set of teleport homers as they soared across the ice, and the devices still winked steadily in the snow. Their call was answered, not by the warriors of the First, but by the Third Brotherhood of the Grey Knights, demon slayers beyond compare. In a perfect hexagrammatic dispersal they materialised, not more than a stone's throw from the demon Primarch they had come to slay. Magnus waved his staff once more, and a sea of cackling pink demons surged from the snow. Rubbery limbs waving as they hurled warp fire into the Grey Knight's ranks. Many of the incorruptible heroes fell, turned to crystal prisons with their souls trapped visibly inside them. The others fought with the fury of the Emperor enraged, their nemesis force weapons carving apart horror after horror in explosions of rank demon matter. Step by step, they hacked a path towards Magnus, their incantations summoning waves of white fire that banished the minor demons that sought to slay them. Only when a flight of burning chariots roared overhead, demons spilling from the fires they left in their wake, was Grand Master Arakan's force all but buried in their enemies. Their advance slowed to a crawl, then stopped altogether. Just as it seemed, the warriors of Titan were to be overwhelmed by the tide of gibbering demons that cascaded towards them. The charge of the Death Wolves hit home, 
Such was their momentum that neither Wolf nor Space Marine had time to think about the nature of the foe they faced. There was simply the kill at Hunt's end, and the reclamation of a planet that was rightfully theirs. For a time, the horrors were pushed back, the cacophonic disorder viewed from high above. It was as if a river of grey and white furrowed bodies pushed back a sickly pink tide. Then the crests of the demon waves turned from pink to blue, and that tide pushed back. Hundreds of wolves and wolf riders were slain, consumed by warp fire or drowned by the enormous press of demon flesh that came against them. Uh, through that sea of demonic terror waited no less than five nemesis dread knights of Titan. Built to fight the kings of the Immaterium on equal terms, the pilots of the giant walkers made short work of the cackling rabble massing around them. Moving in rough lockstep, the Grey Knights, piloting the Dread Knights from their harnesses, stamped and crushed with their silvered exoskeletons, even as they slew with rune-etched blades and heavy psi cannons. The horrors, through every possible change, spell and flame curse they could muster, but their magic found no purchase on the blessed metal of the Dread Knights. In their success against the Demon Hordes, they drew the attention of Magnus, and thereby sealed their doom. A mind-altering blur of colours shot out from the Crimson King's Cyclopean eye. The beam of warp energy was so concentrated that it could not be constrained to a single dimension. And a thousand tiny familiar spirits flew outward and into the heavens as the beam carved across the battle line. In its grievous potency, it annihilated demons and dread knights alike. With a single pass of his bloodshot orb... Magnus had wreaked the most fundamental of changes upon his challengers. Where four heroes of the Imperium had strove to meet him, now there was only scorched air and the lingering echo of screams. The fifth Dread Knight, their leader, was not so lucky. He had been transformed into a giant of bone and silvered cogs. The pilot was now little more than a demented marionette jerked aloft by his own bloody sinews from his machine's pistoning fingers. The destruction of five of Titan's most prized assets was beyond countenance. High above the Fang, the masterfully built spacecraft of the Grey Knight's chapter remote scryed the location of the Demon Primarch, calibrated their weapons batteries, and fired. Searing ruby-red beams shot from their heavens, all four converging upon the same point as the gunners of the Grey Knight's fleet brought their deadliest weapons to bear. By rights, they should have reduced Magnus to a steaming crater. In truth, they did little more than drive him to his knees. A hemisphere of invisible force protected him from physical attack, no matter how powerful. The Demon Primarch rose, laughing cruelly at the impotence of the Imperial Order founded to slay his kind. The rune-casting psychers of Logan's great company, gathered under Nial Stormcaller, did not despair. They sent bolts of psychic lightning, ghostly tempests and blizzards of razored ice knives that flayed to the bone the Zangors, cavorting around their master's feet. Yet none of their runic witchery even touched the Crimson King. If anything... Magnus seemed larger and more powerful than before this first salvo had been fired. The Crimson King's laughter grew louder. Though he now hovered, wings beating slowly above the wolf's gullet, his voice sounded as if he were 
me inches from the ear of all who witnessed him. Those who looked upon him directly did so with needles of pain stabbing their minds, for he glowed almost too bright to bear. With Nial leading their chance, the most powerful of Fenris's rune priests joined their might once more. Slowly the vast chasm of the gullet closed upon Magnus, its rocky edges like the jagged teeth of the world wolf itself. Lava geezered and boiled as the chasm bit with the force of grinding tectonic plates. For a moment, the demon Primarch disappeared from sight. At the last, Magnus threw out his arms and held the rocky jaws wide with only his vast telekinetic power. The jagged teeth of the cliffs snapping to tumble into the fires below. Grandmaster Arakun stretched out his hands, psychic lightning leaping towards Magnus in a great crackling helix. Magnus caught the attack on his staff and hurled it back, the bolt transforming the grey knight into scattering nuggets of fool's gold. Another focused lance strike shot down from the heavens. This one, Magnus did not dissipate upon his protective dome of force, but instead caught with the curve of his blade before hurling it outwards into the rumbling line of battle tanks that was cresting the ridge. The redirected energies hit home with cataclysmic force, smashing the entire column of war engines to smoking ruin. Then Magnus reached upwards. The eye in his palm blinking once as it focused on the spacecraft high above. Uttering a low chant, the Crimson King extended his telekinetic mastery until it soared into the stratosphere and beyond. Space Wolf, Dark Angel and Grey Knight alike stood aghast as the sky was lit with expanding coronas of fire. Those space marines who auto-viewed the blazing phenomena witnessed battle barges and strike cruisers crashing into one another, as if flung by some godly hand, their reactors overloading a moment later to throw all of Asaheim into stark, monochromatic light. Fenris had a new monarch, and he was mighty indeed. Egil Ironwolf howled in outrage, driving his spear of rust towards the monstrous Primarch at full speed. Ruby Beam spat from the Land Raiders' God Hammer Laz Cannons, potent weapons indeed, but rendered pitiful in comparison to the Lance Strikes Magnus had weathered moments before. The Crimson King snarled in impatience, reaching out a clawed hand and clenching it into a fist. Egil Iron Wolf leapt clear as his armoured steed was crushed by an invisible force, buckling like a paper sculpture in an armoured gauntlet. The Wolf Lord tuck up a las cannon from a dead long fang and knelt into a sniper's crouch, sending a dead-eye shot stabbing towards Magnus's eye. The Primarch froze the las beam in place with a pinch of his fingers. With a beckoning gesture, he caught Eagle Ironwolf in his telekinetic grip, yanked him in front of his own kill shot and released the laser from its stasis. The las cannon beam slammed into... Lord Ironwolf, vaporising him from the waist up. It was an ignominious end to a mighty saga, but it had brought Logan Grimnar the time he needed. Jumping from Stormrider at the edge of the chasm, the great wolf called out a mighty challenge. Magnus turned a sneer of disdain on his Cyclopean features. No mortal weapon could harm him, and thanks to the work of the Blue Scribes, 
neither could the enchanted relics of the Imperium. But the Axe of Morkai was not of the Imperium. It had first been forged as a weapon of corn, bane of sorcerers. Logan leapt. The double-headed power axe slammed into Magnus's chest, shattering arcane wards and piercing his breastplate to bite deep. In the distance, thunder rumbled long and loud. Only the psychers present herded for what it was, the laughter of the blood god himself. With a deafening roar of pain, Magnus swatted Grimnar back over the lip of the precipice. His allies were close at hand and more than ready to seize their chance. A gleaming throng of grey knight purifiers gained the chasm's edge, blades extended to pour the white fires of banishment into the demon Primarch's wound. Magnus's arcane aura had been compromised badly, for though he possessed wards against every weapon the Imperium might throw at him, he could not guard against an axe once forged in the name of the Blood God. He lashed out with his immense staff, its blade cutting nine of the Grey Knights in half at the waist, but it was a blow of spite rather than conquest. The psychic might of the Grey Knights still ranged against him, poured through the gap torn in his arcane shielding. Incandescent in their power as they burned away the demon Primarch's flesh. In moments he was reaved, head to toe in blazing white fire. In a heartbeat, Magnus glowed brighter than the wolf's eye. The immense energies playing around him turned him from giant to burning supernova. Every imperial warrior for miles around was blasted backwards to land steaming in the snow. When they got back to their feet, the Thousand Suns, the Demon Hordes, and their Cyclopean master alike had vanished from existence. With Magnus's disappearance, a gale of magical energy raced from world to world, snatching away demon and traitor alike. From the viewpoint of a warrior, courage and strength had carried the day, but their lords and masters were not so sure. Had Magnus and his armies truly been defeated? The suspicion that worse was to come hung in the air. Though the Cyclops Magnus had been banished by the Wolf Lords and their allies. The butcher's bill was dizzyingly high. Drifts of corpses lay piled upon the snow as if they had rained from the heavens. The ranks of loyalist and traitor, long riven by ancient strife, lay mingled once more in debt. Logan Grimnar sat up from the gore-stained slush, a dozen broken bones making every movement painful as he coughed blood onto the back of his gauntlet. He stood, nonetheless, raising the axe of Morkai high to glint in the new dawn. A chorus of cheers greeted the act, but it was shockingly thin and weary. In the depths of the Fang, the dreadnought army of Bjorn the Fell-Handed had been brought low by the pyromancy host. The constant barrage of warpfire had reduced the throng of ancients to a handful of walkers. The smell of cooked and corrupted meat hung thick in the air, for the woven of the dungeons had fared even worse, and the pyromancers had reached their goal, though only three were left alive. Bjorn fought on, half-conscious, his sarcophagus sloughed away by the fire of the greater demon forms. Then Magnus had departed, and the dreadnoughts found themselves facing not a host, but a minor cabal. The flagstone shook as Bjorn drove his charge home, and a thousand suns were wiped out. All across the death world, the story was the same. 
What had seemed to be battles against insurmountable odds soon turned to a bloody massacre. Those thousand sons and Zangors, not borne away by Magnus's fall, were left scattered and directionless, easy prey for the vengeful armies of Fenris. Among the greatest concentrations of etheric energy, monsters from legend still stalked the land. A gunner Redmoon and his warriors were assailed by a vast, skeletal wolf creature the colour of dried blood, the living incarnation of their totem, conjured from tribal nightmares and sent to slay as many as it could. Its claws were red with Fenrisian blood before the concentrated firepower of long-fang packs and predator squadrons took it down. In the far south, Bjorn Stormwolf was eaten whole by a Zenshin giant, though the Wolf Lord ripped his way from the beast's abdomen. His face was so scarred by intestinal acid, his raucous laugh was never heard again. The auto-scalds and quell servitors recorded many a saga over those twilight hours, but a sense of foreboding, not victory, hung in the air. The fires of defiance had guttered and gone still, replaced by the ashen exhaustion of grief. Logan Grimnar knew well what was to come in the aftermath of the Primarch's banishment. He had fought alongside the Grey Knights before, notably during the First War for Armageddon and the last days of the Sanctus Reach, and knew their methods were as thorough as they were uncompromising. All those mortals that had witnessed the taint of the demon firsthand were to be processed and destroyed without mercy, for left alone the seed of that knowledge could eventually bear terrible fruit. In the war for Fenris, countless thousands of native tribesmen had not only set eyes upon the demon hosts, but in some cases fought them directly. The Grey Knights had already begun their dark work, their agents gathering those tribes afflicted by the truth into the bowels of vast bulk lifters. Grimnar's wolf lords protested, even came to blows, but this time there was nothing the great wolf could do to intervene. To resist the edicts of the Ordo Malleus, whilst the eyes of the high lords were upon them, would be uh, to risk bringing the entire chapter under censure, and perhaps trigger another civil war just when the hour was darkest, perhaps even damning Fenris to exterminatus alongside its departed brother, Midgardia. With a heavy heart, Logan gave his seal of approval to the tribesmen's abduction. They were never seen again. The worlds of the Fenris system were plagued by disasters as the aftermath of the Zenshin invasion rolled on. Midgardia's demise had shaken every planet and moon in that system, taking a gradual but profound effect upon every neighbouring world. Frostheim had been reduced to a wasteland of bone, its icy mantle melted away to reveal a thick stratum of fossils. There were those who said that, under the new moon, some of these skeletons came alive, hunting for the blood of those mortals still eking their lives from the osseous wastes. Svelgard, the ocean moon, was evacuated over the course of a long and difficult month. As it passed close to the wolf's eye, it was subjected to a barrage from solar storms induced by Midgardia's demise. Solar flares lashed its surface, turning the once tainted seas to steam. Though barren, it was subsequently resettled, 
its sandy islands turn to mountains of glass amidst the hard-baked crust of the seabed. Valdemani, the wolf moon, remained a hellish wasteland. It had been the site of a demon ritual of surpassing size, and though it had since been reconsecrated, there were sightings of warpgeists for weeks. The moon was racked by electrical storms and hurricanes of flesh-stripping intensity, but it rode out the catastrophe, rebuilt by the adepts of the Imperium into an astropathic relay station linked to the Corostriums of Terra's Warden Districts. Though it too was assailed by natural disasters beyond sane measure, Fenris itself remained whole. The infection beneath its crust eventually burned away. The planet, vast and indomitable, had orbited the wolf's eye for geological eras uncounted. It would endure, as it always had, for a time. The spawn of chaos frothed and crawled from the fissures and seas, expelled from the natural order as a healthy body expels a splinter. The rune priests, communing with the spirit of the world wolf, were quick to proclaim it whole. Yet from that day on, the relationship with the Dark Angels was more strained than ever before, and the agents of the Ordo Hereticus were frequent guests in the Fang's halls. Some said the monsters that haunted the Femrisian wilderness had lately been more terrifying than any could recall, and that the Dark Gods had cast a pall across the Death World. But the people of Fenris were warriors born, not given to despair. Over time, the nightmares of the false flame height faded away. By that time, Logan Grimnar and his most trusted warriors were long gone, and received a distress hymnal of paramount urgency from the fortress world of Cadia. One that hinted at the presence of multiple demon primarchs, including Magnus. The wolf lords had mustered once more around the Grand Annulus. Logan Grimnar had changed since the death of Eagle Ironwolf and his duel with the Crimson King. Now, the same light glinted in his eyes as in that of his mentor, Ulrich the Slayer. He had seen Russ, despite what the whispers said. He was certain of it. The immediate danger was past. Their vendetta with Magnus and his thousand sons resolved for the time being, at least. The wolf time was upon them, and they must rise to the challenge. So it was that the Space Wolves departed for the Cadian Gate, elements of every great company taking to the Sea of Stars once more to bolster the war effort against the forces of Abaddon the Despoiler. Fenris was left under garrison, but its defenders were few in number, for between the Wolven's curse and the invasion of the Crimson King, the chapter had been reduced to a fraction of its former strength. Still, the Great Wolf's conviction was infectious. They would meet the threat of chaos head-on, and if they successfully hunted Magnus unto death, their sagas would be sung from one end of the galaxy to the other. Only when the grand fleet of the Space Wolves had made translation into the Cadian system did the stones cast by the room priests all begin to form the same shape. They showed the ancient Prosperine symbol for vengeance. Well, there you go, everybody. Hope you did enjoy this. Um, yeah. <laughs> it turned out to be much longer than I thought. Thank you to everybody supporting the channel. 
you can see your name scrolling by as I speak and honestly honestly means the world really really helps if you'd like to support the channel as well please consider using the links below I've put some cryptocurrency links down there as well because people have asked me about that and thank you very much for the Bitcoin I appreciate that so yeah this is a weird one I like I need to catch up a bit more on the Space Wolf stuff there's a there's a novel I need to read and there's a few other bits and bobs I need to read you know like Ragnar Blackmane is basically the great wolf now I need to sort of yeah, there's a, there's a new novel by Chris Wright coming out as well. I forgot what it's called, but um, Sagas or something, I forget. But yeah, there's a, I've, I've been saying for a while I need to catch up on Space Wolf stuff because like, this was all new to me. I knew something had happened there with Thousand Sons and stuff, but I don't know. And there's some odd things in this as well. I don't know. It's okay, I guess. It's just, eh, there's just parts that are a bit off, I guess I'd say. But um, yeah, you know, there's some nice bit like, Mentioning like uh, you know callbacks to the Ragnar Blackmane series and stuff, little 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 things that are mentioned, but I don't know. There's just something that feels off about this, and some of the things are a bit unbelievable, like the whole involvement of the. Di it, it just seems a bit weird. Everything seems a bit weird. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It's strange, <laughs> strange, a strange um, campaign and part of the law. I might do like a whole video going over this, like in general. Um, there's a couple of other bits that I haven't really... Yeah, I don't know. I'll do a video. I'll do a video. Trust me. Anyway, thank you all again. Like I say, thanks for supporting the channel. That really helps, especially in these trying times. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'll be back with more very, very soon. Uh, if the sound sounds maybe a little bit off, it's because I'm recording in a different location at the moment. So uh, bear with me on that. But uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. This is the Warzone Fenris. Resolved, I guess. Uh, what a mess. <laughs> All right, see you later. Bye-bye.